Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome, everybody. Good morning. Uh, I guess people will be straggling in. Uh, but, you know, we got a lot to do. And of course, we won't be meeting next week because that's Christmas Day. <laughs> you know, we could, but I, I don't want to be too sacrilegious like that. And then the week after that is New Year's Day. So I guess we'll be getting back together in January. But in the meantime, we got a, a lot to do um, reading wise and uh, so on. I'll, I'll tell you something about that, a proposal that Michelle Yu uh, made uh, about reading. And, uh, but today we want to um, uh, do, uh, oh, three major things, let's put it that way. Um, the crisis of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration. Uh, and that's a whole big thing, we'll get to that. Uh, the, uh, the recent, statements of District Attorney Krasner and uh, what that said, what it means, uh, and then uh, some things about uh, the life and death of uh, Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's that'll be a little more complicated, uh, but just a few things. And then what um, uh, next year, uh, perhaps will look like for the free school, including the um, celebration of the 10th anniversary of the free school. Uh, you know, let me just start with this. You know, Baldwin, James Baldwin, had a very uh, colorful, maybe that doesn't describe what I want to say, uh, but a very profound uh, phrase. He talked about a long meantime. Now, everybody knows what, when you say in the meantime, you know, in other words, uh, uh, while I'm waiting to get something, I'm going to make do with what I have. So you say, well, you know, um, I don't have no money, but in the meantime, I'm going to uh, make do. Uh, I don't, uh, I guess it's, I don't have a girlfriend, but in the meantime, I'll make do. You know what I'm saying? That makes sense to y'all. Okay, make it very concrete, existential. So, but the concept of the long meantime is an, is an ironic kind of thing because the meantime, in the meantime means in the short run, but a long meantime means that the meantime, in the meantime, might last for an extended period, you know? And in a lot of ways, when we look at the situation at this time in the United States, words like the long game, the long meantime apply. Because unless we can think about the long game, the long meantime, it's very difficult to analyze the moment. One of the 
great uh, problems for the left. And, you know, Johan and I were just uh, talking about this was the fact that they had no long game. It was everything was the immediate. And so a lot of hyperbolic language, such as, you know, we talked about Cornell West and the whole thing of we have a, a neo-fascist thug in the White House. You know what I'm saying? Without any understanding of fascism, neo-fascism uh, or whatever but it was to get an immediate effect. The quote, Black Lives Matter movement was one of those movements that claimed to be something that it wasn't. It was never a civil rights movement. It was never about black life. It was about electing Trump. I mean, pardon me, Biden. It was a democratic party along with the nonprofit industrial complex, of course, the corporate media, uh, et cetera, that said, we will use this to delegitimize and um, morally smear everybody that votes for Trump. You know? Um, so the left jumped on board. The, well, we have to put quotes, because what is the left? You know? Uh, the left is AOC, because she says she's left. Uh, the left is Bernie Sanders. The left is whoever wants to be called left for the time. Well, is it the left of the Democratic Party? Okay, maybe you want, maybe that's what you are. But that includes a lot of people, including the Communist Party of the United States, sadly, uh, including the Democratic Socialists of America, sadly. You know, uh, of course, AOC, that's the left of the Democratic Party. How do they, what do they do? What is their function? Their function is to be left gatekeepers. If you, if there's an attempt to leave the Democratic Party from the left, they're going to cancel you. Uh, you're a collaborationist with the neo-fascist thugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they do not have power to control the Democratic Party, even though they're high profile, they got millions of followers on Twitter and other social media platforms, but the substance of political power they do not have, you know? But what do they do? They are like, you know, um, uh, in your family, you know, everybody is uh, 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 talking a lot of trash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you got somebody come in, I'm gonna expose all of y'all. You know, let's say you're from a family that sells drugs on the down low, right? And you have uh, a brother that's down with you, but he ain't getting what he wants. So now he's gonna go tell on you. So that's kind of what the left of the Democratic Party does. They're like <laughs> the snitches. <laughs> and to keep it, to keep things under control, no left critique. There is no left serious critique of the Democratic Party. You see what I'm saying? And so they give a kind of veneer of legitimacy. Oh, look, we're the New Deal coalition of the 1930s. Oh, we got the, the Democrats, the normal Democrats, the centrist, the corporate Democrats, and then we got 
these cultural leftists, you know, transgender, uh, uh, same-sex marriage, abortion, you know, all the cultural things. Uh, 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 how would you say the other thing is uh, the anti-white supremacists, you know, the 16, 19. Oh, we're all in this thing together with Joe Biden. You know, and Joe Biden, as I always say, you guys wouldn't know about this, but back before he was shuffling, when he could put two sentences together coherently, believe me, hey, you talking about arrogance. You talking about the crime bill of 1994, the black predators, lock them up. I'm going, you know, he was, you know, he was like a bully, drank hard whiskey day and night you know, player, all of that. All, I mean, really, you know, not a bad looking guy back in his days, wore the best suits, you know, kept himself suave. But now, how do you make him, how do you make him the, um, uh, the Franklin D. Roosevelt of the 2020s? How are you gonna do that? You can't. It's a hard sell. That's why you need a left couple to sell him to the rebellious young people, to the rebellious people in the black community in the labor movement who saying, no, nah, this don't work. You're not going to use me on election day and forget about me after that. Like Malcolm X said, you put him first and he put you last. You know what I'm saying? No, we're not. So you, you need a left to keep explaining to you a quote left, explaining to the people that no, it's not what you think. And if you don't have him, you're gonna have fascism, right? That, that's the role of the left. And sadly, Cornell kind of functions that way. You know, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that, but it's very important to understand the, uh, positioning of different political groupings within this quote, broad ruling class movement. And that's what it is called the Democratic Party. You know, the ruling class movement that calls itself the Democratic Party. The thing that you guys got to pay close attention to, you know, there is very little below the surface. It's a very superficial configuration. It's a top-down. And whenever you have top-down movements, and this, I don't care if you study the Russian Revolution, whether you study the um, any revolution, whenever it's top-down, it only gets so far from the top. And there is very little at the grassroots or mass level. You see what I'm saying? So all of this at the top, you know, uh, is it stays there. All of their academic experts, all of their uh, politicians and intellectuals and cultural this, that, and the other, you know, which can always be on television and social media. Well, 
They are to make people believe that there's more to this coalition than there actually is. And believe me, there's very little there, very little. And, you know, perhaps Joe Biden is the right man for this time for this ruling class. If you feel where I'm coming from, he deserves them and they deserve him. It is pure rank opportunism. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that, especially when we get to Larry Krasner. And I hope some of my friends are listening to this because I'm gonna talk to them because they need to be talked to. But the Democratic Party, starting with the Biden administration is now facing what I would call an existential crisis. And this is not just about the Democratic Party because all of the establishment Republicans, uh, all of the quote conservatives in the media in academia have all abandoned what is now the Trump party. Uh, quite interestingly, in 2016, Trump, while campaigning, predicted that he would fundamentally change the Republican Party and make of it a working class party. These are his words. And if you go to Politico and put something like that in their search engine, I think you will find that statement. Uh, and in fact, the Republican Party is made up of the majority of the working class. The only group in the working class that is holding out at this point are black workers, but not because they are so committed to the Democratic Party. They just have not made up their mind. Uh, Mexican and other Latino workers are going in droves from the Democrats to the Trump party. Uh, well, the entirety, almost, the, almost all of the white working class are over there, you know? And as a consequence, you're seeing um, uh, throughout the country, uh, Republicans running for state office, running for Congress, who are talking more about working class issues, including universal health care and other things. Uh, this is this these uh, this phenomena has been reported on in Politico. I don't, Joe. Maybe you have uh, seen more of these essays, but it's all over the place. So, the Democratic Party today is is the party of the greatest concentration of wealthy people of any political party in human history. There's never been a political party where all billionaires are in it. You know what I'm saying? It is the party of extreme wealth and power. And it is the party that is committed to, uh, to, the, to the ruling class holding on to power. That's what it functions for these days. Let me put that another way. The Democratic Party does not have a program for the people. In spite of what they say, I want to cut to the essence. Its function 
is to ensure that the ruling class holds on to power. The vast majority of those in the ruling class, I'm not just talking about the billionaires, when we talk about the ruling class, it's not, this is not an economic uh, definition or identity. Sure, it is the billionaires, but it is all of those who are committed to uh, holding on to the capitalist mode of production in this moment of deep crisis. That is the ruling class. Uh, the majority of the ruling class is made up of bureaucrats, politicians, intellectuals, uh, uh, career civil servants, that type of thing. They're all the ruling class, you know, the FBI, you know, all of those, the top ranks of the military. That is what we call the ruling class, you know, and they rule not just in the interest of, let us say, the richest people or the most wealthy people, but they rule in the interest of a system. A system, and not just a system uh, that rules and dominates this country, but a world system. So the fractures that we see domestically are also more profound globally. And this is big, this is huge. But the immediate crisis, Joe Biden, not even a year as president, not even a year running on, you know, I'm going to get everybody vaccinated, we're gonna bring COVID under control and the country will be back to normal. The economy will begin to uh, grow uh, at rates that we haven't seen. And I'm going to be, I'm going to govern as a progressive. In other words, I'm proposing $3.5 trillion. Uh, everybody get out of jail. We defund them. You know, everything you ever heard of that you ever want, it's going to be like you died and went to heaven. You know, working class, middle class, come on back to the ruling class. We can run this thing, you know, give up on this rebellion, all this anger. We're going to buy you off in, in the short term. But then it didn't work out. It didn't work out. You know, part of the reason it politically was not going to work out is that the Trump party, and every Republican, I don't care what she or he says, that remains in the Republican Party has to accept the dominance of Trump and his forces. I don't care if you're Mitch McConnell or the, the woman who's a senator from Maine, the so-called moderates. If you are in the Republican Party, you have to accept that leadership. It is the decisive force in the Republican Party, which is the Trump Party, probably, and I'll get back to this, the most important political force in the country. Let me just say quickly, that's what the Virginia gubernatorial race showed. Because it was a face-off 
between a Republican, moderately uh, Trump, not a Trumpist in the ext quote extreme sense, but enough of Trump to let you know what time of day it was, and Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe is not just a cat running for office. He is a huge player in the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, huge. And when he began to get into trouble in that race, look who came down, Obama, uh, Biden, as they say, shuffling along. Um, Kamala. Kamala, yeah, she came down. In other words, the two wings that are fighting for control of the White House, the Obama wing and the Clinton wing, they united to save Terry McAuliffe. And then after he lost, they went back to war with each other. And this is, we'll get back to that. But this White House and this presidency is probably facing a crisis the likes of which no president has faced in the first year or less than a year in office. In other words, there's the first 100 days where you know everything is yada 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 you know love fest <laughs> let's you know hold hands and sing kumbaya across the party divisions he never had that you know immediately the republicans went to war with him well what were they saying well you say we don't accept the 2020 election did y'all accept the 2016 election oh. and that is what provoked what is happening now in a lot of ways. Don't forget, Trump wasn't even inaugurated and they were saying that the Russians elected him. Remember that? Russia gate. Now we know that was a full lie, you know? And then, then you're gonna impeach the man twice. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on y'all. I mean, it just became a circus to delegitimize him. And then in 2020, he lost the popular vote, but he got more votes than any Republican has ever gotten. And the interesting thing is his quote coalition, which I call a coalition of the angry and dissatisfied, not a coalition of the white supremacists. That is a smear invented by the Democratic Party. It is not that. And how do I know it is not that? I know it is not that because of the statistical breakdown of the 2016 election. 70% of those majority white counties that voted for Obama twice voted for Trump. Oh, so they were white, they were anti-white supremacists in 2008 and 2012. And then in 2016, they became white supremacists again. I don't think so. 13% of the people that voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary voted for Trump. Thank you. Is, well, did, were they anti-white supremacists in the Democratic primary when they voted for Bernie, but then they became white supremacists in November? Then of course, 
and this is how I knew it was a coalition of the dissatisfied. Black vote did not vote. Now, black people are a particular political category. They don't operate like any other group, believe me. You almost have to know them. Just, you almost, like, I, I, it's not complete. But you got to almost be black and live black and been around black political activity for some time to see it. They quietly abstain. You see what I'm saying? They're not going to raise no hell, quietly abstain. Some voted for Trump. I know people who came to me secretly <laughs> and said, look, Tony, don't tell my children, but I voted for Trump. I said, why'd you do that? She said, because I, I detested the, the, the weak way that Obama responded to the murder of Trayvon Martin. I have a son that's Trayvon Martin's age. He likes Skittles, mm -hmm. you know, and he wore a, a hoodie. Mm -hmm. And what Obama did to make it look like, ha, 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 let's get on with business. Mm -hmm. She said, my vote was a vote of protest. Mm -hmm. Trump won Pennsylvania. No Republican had won Pennsylvania in almost 40 years, presidential race. What was it? A couple of things. One, in Philadelphia, Black folk did not turn out in adequate numbers. That quiet abstaining, you know? It was this, a coalition of the dissatisfied and angry, which still exists, that was the key to the electoral college victory of Donald Trump. Now, in the United States, we have to understand the electoral college. The US is not a parliamentary system. You know what I'm saying? It's two parties, you know, in these national elections. So if you don't have an electoral college, it literally means that California, New York, Texas, Illinois, the big states will decide every election because that's where the majority of the population is. With this kind of system, which I'm not defending, but it says that a state like Vermont or Idaho has some, um, uh, how do they say, they got, they, they're part of the game. You know, that's why you have that. So now they say, well, we want to turn, overturn the electoral, well, you didn't want to overturn it when it played to your favor, right. you know? I mean, these Democrats crack me up. Oh, we're down with the uh, filibuster until it doesn't work for us. Either you're down or you're not down, you know? But the ruling class never accepted as legitimate Trump's election, never did. And they hounded him for four years. And it was, it was unbelievable. Nothing like that had ever happened. Nothing. No president had ever experienced what he experienced. A lot of people say, well, he deserved it because he's a cold-blooded white supremacist. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they want to oh, hold up. We got to hold up a minute. They want to use these things. Uh, 
Like they say, preschool is very, very flexible. <laughs> really, we know how to keep it moving. <laughs> it's all good. have a way of, of morphing into cursing and profanity and I'm in the church. But anyway, no president had ever experienced that. And his people, the people, and then of course, to label every white person that voted for Trump as a white supremacist. Uh, that uh, that what we were experiencing is a crisis of, um, of historic proportions, and it continues to this day. We'll come back to that. Um, by the way, you know, there's an article, I guess Jerry and Joe and myself were talked about it, an article in the New York Times, which cites a number of academic studies and um, what academic researchers and elite universities. Uh, and when you say academic research searches in elite universities, what you are saying by saying that, that's a long way of saying um, puppets of the ruling class. That's really what they are. And so their concept is to, um, to defend the existing order and the existing class relations of power. But uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But everybody is, to make a long story brief, everybody at the elite level is in a state of anxiety and pessimism. And it kind of boils down to one phrase, we're losing our democracy, you know. But then at the level of the grassroots, it's a different narrative. And it pivots in the immediate sense, not in some high ideological political sense of, quote, we're losing our democracy. But there are three big issues that affect across the board the masses of people. One, inflation. Now, you know, we in the free school began talking about inflation about four or five, maybe earlier, months ago. This is when all of the economic experts, including Yellen, who is the Secretary of the Treasury, and she was at one time the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, so she's supposed to know everything, and a wise woman and all that, and the adult in the house, uh, and uh, others came out with the same, well, don't worry about inflation, it's only transitory. Hmm. But now they're all saying this is more dangerous than we thought. 
this is, and it is. Now they said that in November, um, inflation jumped uh, to about 6.8%. But let me tell you, when they give you inflation percentages and numbers, they're not talking about your experience or my experience with inflation because they don't include in it the things that we buy. Fuel like gas and heating oil and food, that's not included. So you can see a 30, 40, 50% increase in gas at the pump, then everybody gets afraid. Well, what, how am I gonna heat my house in the winter? Or how am I going to get to work? Or it doesn't include when you go to the uh, market and you say, well, it's Christmas time. I'm going to buy a turkey. And then you see the price. You say, no, I'm not going to buy a turkey. Let me get some ground beef. <laughs> you have hamburgers. You know what I'm saying? Or you go and say, I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. You look at the price. I don't think so. <laughs> we just have to eat rice, <laughs> you know. But anyway, this is where it is hitting the people. So the experience of the masses of people with inflation is vastly different than what these elite economists living in condos and drinking only the most expensive scotch and brown liquor and gin, <laughs> but you know, I mean, they live in good, so it don't affect them like it affects us. So inflation, let me tell you about inflation. I'll say it again and again and again. It is of all economic events, the most uh, politically consequential because of it, the breadth of, of the effect, you know, Everybody don't be unemployed, even if you got high unemployment, right? But everybody feels inflation. It is the most politically consequential, you know? Now, politic, by politically, I mean consequential in terms of, uh, let's take this, the upcoming congressional elections. The Democrats are going to be wiped out. No question about it. Everybody knows that they've accepted it. So, yeah, they're going to be wiped out. So that's why they're trying to get on with the January 6th investigation. Because that's going to be over in a couple months. You know what I'm saying? And that's why Bannon and them are saying, hey, man, lock me up. You know what I'm saying? You're making me, you're making me a revolutionary hero. <laughs> He's delusional. He's like, I'm the Lenin of the right. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in a minute. They, they don't care. Now, you've got cats, weak cats, they're giving over stuff. But most people, they say, lock me up. The January 6th people, they, they got one cat, he's going to do about five years, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, for throwing a. a a fire extinguisher at a police officer. But, <laughs> but they want to get on with this and see if they can stop the bleeding. Because if they get wiped out in 2022, next year, 
which means not only the House, we know the House is gone, but probably the Senate, the Senate, which means we're back to where we started with in 2016. And thus begins next year, after we, after the dust clears, we begin the presidential election, which is not just the election president, but what will be the configuration of power in this country. Very consequential election, and we have to understand it, and that's why we have to not, we have to understand what this quote left is, because they're going to come out with all of the propaganda, they're going to be talking loud and saying nothing, can try to confuse the masses, because the ruling class is in a fight for its life. Inflation, that's number one. It doesn't look like it's going to abate. Once inflation gets out of control, people start doing crazy things, even ordinary people, like turning to cryptocurrencies, yeah. you know, Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, I got a cat that I listened to called Max Kaiser, and his answer to everything is Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> but don't nobody know what Bitcoin is, except for me, and he still ain't explained it. <laughs> Well, where's blockchain? Well, blockchain is if you do this and I do that. <laughs> so don't nobody know what Bitcoin or crypto. You know what crypto means? Crypto means, uh, I was going to say fake, crypto, uh, disguise. Mm -hmm. So if you say cryptocurrency, it's something like currency, but it really ain't currency. So you say, well, I know what it's like to hold a dollar in my hand. <laughs> but I don't know what it's like to have a uh, million dollars in crypto. And then when they go to this thing of mining crypto, mining crypto, what, what you talk, it is, it's all, this is what you call a Ponzi screen. <laughs> a few people know what the game is and everybody else has been sold that since these people said, I made a hundred million dollars on crypto in six months. <laughs> you understand? It's, it's just like Jane Fonda saying, do aerobics, you live forever. <laughs> and now she got osteoporosis. She's one, no, Jane Fonda's one that came out with aerobics. Y'all didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. Yeah, check it out. Check it. She started that. You know, I know it was a sexy thing, you know, because she had on leotards and jumping around and all that. Yeah. A lot of brothers, oh my God, I'm going to live forever. But anyway. But you don't. So everybody's saying, look, the dollar is being devalued. All sovereign currencies, that is currencies that are backed up by a government, are going down, except the Chinese renminbi. And maybe the North Korean currency, because they act like they ain't worried about nobody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, North Koreans, they say, look, y'all do y'all, but don't come up in here. <laughs> 
This song called Armed and Extremely Dangerous. <laughs> and that's what, that's what the North Koreans said. We armed and extremely dangerous. And uh, you see what we got, you know, and don't. I mean, I, I love them people. I, mean, I love that. Huh? Yeah, you got to love them. No COVID either. No, huh? no COVID because no one's going. No, nobody, ain't nobody got COVID. You can't come in and you can't come out. You know they're not border with China. South Korea ain't coming in there. You know, nobody from the white world is allowed up in there. So hey, we ain't got no COVID. Everybody's eating. You know, and we got uh, weapons. And if the United States think they're gonna come over here with nuclear weapons on us, we can touch you. <laughs> That's what the, you know, in boxing, I can, you can touch me and I can touch you. And let's see who get touched the hardest. <laughs> no country in history has ever done what they have done. And they are worthy of a real study because they teach the world resilience, how to unite a people. And it is the unity of the people that decides history. Okay, inflation. Raging could become hyperinflation, which means then we back to Germany in the 1920s. Cat got a wheelbarrow full of German Mars. Somebody said, hey dog, where you going with all that money? I'm going shopping. <laughs> going shopping. I said, yeah, man, a loaf of bread is half a million dollars. <laughs> a loaf of bread, a quart of milk, and a chicken. That's why I need five million dollars. Really. <laughs> and like in Zimbabwe, it got so bad over there. The government said, y'all think you're poor now? Look, I'm going to give everybody my print money. Give everybody money. <laughs> they printed so much money, a, you know, a dollar was worth half a penny. So any, you know, so inflation can get out of hand. I mean, and it has in human history. And it happens when a state no longer has control politically where ruling class has lost control. So when you talk about inflation, you're talking about an economic event, but that quickly becomes a profound political event and threatens the sovereignty or the rule of a ruling class. And since the dollar is the global reserve currency, which means that not only is it privileged, because everybody needs dollars that they're going to trade on the world scale. It's a very, you know, money is a very funky thing. Mm. You got every kind of theory of money that you can imagine. You understand? Like what they got the, the new theory of money. Yeah, modern monetary theory. Modern, modern monetary theory. Just spend all the money you need. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, let the good times roll. That's a blues song. <laughs> I don't care if you're young and old, let the good times roll. You know, drink all that whiskey, get some fentanyl too in your weed. Hey, <laughs> but the good times come to an end. You can only party but so long. And then you back the basics. What is money? What does money represent? If not labor, past labor, 
when you got a dollar in your pocket, that represents that you worked. You dig what I'm saying? You ain't got no money either. It's the labor of other people that you're living off of. I mean, you know, like on welfare, unemployment. I'm not talking about the rich now. But if you got money, it represents labor. So labor don't count no more. The labor theory of value ain't in play no more, right? You know, we, we ultra supply side economists, ultra libertarians, don't nothing count no more. It's what, if you say I'm down, you know, and yeah, I'm down. It's like identity politics of economics. And you know, identity politics don't go with so far. You know, you, you, you know, like identity, you know, you feel good for about two years. And then you say, now I'm back to basics. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm super black, I'm black and I'm black, I'm whole, mm -hmm. kill the white man and all that. And then suddenly I got to I got to go to work and get a job and pay my rent. And black don't pay the bills. I need a job. So the economics, economic fundamentals have a way of asserting themselves to a lot of bullshit. You understand? Okay. I'm not going to say anything more about inflation, but I just recommend one book. The only book of classical political economy since Marx, or since the, the high point of classical political economy. And that is John Maynard Keynes. His last name spelled K-E-Y-N-E-S. Now it's spelled John Maynard. His book, General Theory of Employment, uh, Interest in Money, where the fundamental categories capitalist political economy are reinterrogated. You know what I'm saying? In other words, Keynes, in order to understand finance capital and the crisis, had to re-interrogate, re-explore the fundamental categories of political economy. Categories that first arise with the English political economists. You know what I'm saying? Just basic shit. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're going to treat cancer, don't say I'm going to treat cancer and you're a cosmologist. At least have some background in biology. You know, oh no, I'm going to cut on you. I don't, you know, like that commercial. <laughs> Somebody fall out, the person run over. They, they, and she said, everybody be careful. Somebody said, are you a doctor? No, but I watched a lot of it on television. <laughs> I watched a lot of doctor uh, so, But there are fundamental things to any explanation of natural or human relationships. There's certain fundamentals. You know, and when we get when I talk about bell hooks in a moment. I'm going to explain how postmodernism said that fundamentals don't matter anymore, you know, and what that has meant. Right? But anyway, okay. Now, the second thing that we, that is leading to this crisis is the persistence of COVID. It ain't going away no time soon in this country. 
North Korea, they may have shut it down. South Korea doing pretty good. China, 1.4 billion people, but they handling it. You know what I'm saying? They said there was a port city and one case came up, they shut the whole city down. Everybody go home and chill. Chill out, man, until we get this under control. But because the government has legitimacy and has a, uh, a relationship with its people, it can say that. Everybody went home and said, chill. Uh, am I going to get paid? Yeah, you're going to get paid. Don't worry about it. We got you. You know? But over here, people say, shoot, you lied to me about this and you lied about that. You're probably lying about that. And I'm a conspiracy theorist and I don't believe nothing you say. So I'll die before I get, get vaccinated. You see, you got that problem. Just like you got the problem of people not taking jobs. That is a judgment upon a ruling class that they do not believe and do not trust, and especially young people. Why should I go to work? I can't buy a house. And if I don't go, to, if I don't have a job, I can't pay my student loans. And I don't want to pay them because you overcharged me and you didn't give me nothing in return. You know what I'm saying? So people are leaving society are retreating from society. You know, uh, uh, Jeremiah just showed me an article for people 18 to 45, the major cause of death is fentanyl overdose. Of all deaths, not just drug deaths, of all deaths, fentanyl overdose in this country. In other words, the same people that are opting out of the economy. You see what I'm saying? There's an overlap here. But COVID, remember, remember Biden when he was in his cell running for, for president? There's a reason he never came out. They didn't want people to see how frail he is. So he said. He ran in the election against Trump on based on Trump's mishandling of the COVID pandemic. Remember? In fact, they said it. We have to make Trump pay for his denial of COVID in the early months and his mishandling of it going forward. Now it turns out that more people have died of COVID under Biden than under Trump mm -hmm. with no end in sight. So they say, get yourself vaccinated and then now get your booster. Mm -hmm. And now you might need a booster every year. You know what I'm saying? Okay, then they came out and said, Johnson and Johnson is fake. It ain't working. So you get people who have been vaccinated getting infected so now they say well don't worry about it because you don't have to be hospitalized and you ain't gonna die then it came out somebody just died <laughs> so like they say you got six in one hand half a dozen in the other so who do you believe but at any rate it is causing profound anxiety and people are looking at Biden I thought you said when you got in, things going to get back to normal and 
everybody gonna get vaccinated and you know, you understand what I'm saying? Then we could celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. We could ride on planes, you know, and you know, as a, there's a there's a boogie down Broadway. We can get it on, you know, just have you know, party like it's 1999. This was the promise, right? COVID is back. And then the third thing, and this is deep growing violence in cities. In cities governed by Democrats. So if you're in Philadelphia, Mayor Kenny, DA Krasner, head of city council of Daryl Clark, of my girl, Helen Gim. <laughs> <laughs> and we I, I dig Helen, but look, girl, you can't play that ambitious thing. You got to be more principled. You know what I'm saying? Ambition and principle don't go together. They don't. They really don't. And one gonna give way to the other. And she's very smart, you know. But she's running for mayor. Let's be real. She's been running for mayor and so on. But. Everybody, we got to get Trump out of there. Everybody come out to vote. If we don't have, if they tell black, if you don't get Trump out of there, we're going to be back in slavery next month. <laughs> they, they told us that we're going back into slavery. <laughs> they going to take the right to vote away. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to take no right to vote away in Philadelphia. For black they told us all of this. <laughs> and then they had these crazies running around, defund the police, <laughs> abolish all the prisons. If somebody gets shot, call a social worker. Call a social worker. I got somebody up in here with a pistol to my head. We talk about call the social worker. I mean, for I remember when I first heard this, this thing of defund the police. I'd never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was being incubated in elite universities yeah. in sociological grad seminars. And you know how simple them people are. <laughs> if you want to see some dummies, go to a grad seminar at an elite university. You know what I'm saying? You, you know what I'm talking about. You've been in one. Okay. You in one now? You know what I'm saying? You go to one of them things, and the dumbest people who specialize in running off at the mouth, they can talk a lot, but it's no consequence. When there's no consequence to what you say, you're liable to say anything. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If you are accountable to somebody for what you say, you're a little more discreet, a little more bounded. There are boundaries. But if there's no console, you just run off at the jibs. And especially the mouth, that's what they're. And especially if the ruling class, through its media and politicians, say, yeah, go ahead, talk all that shit, you know? Go ahead. Oh, now, if I run, if the more outlandish I sound, the better my chances are of getting on CNN. You know, 
the more outlandish I am, the better my chances are for getting promotion and tenure at my university. So I'm gonna run off at the mouth. No consequences. Defund the government. So wait a minute. Did I hear what I just said? That was in the summer. I never heard of it. I'm out of touch with the, with the universities. Yes or no, defund the police. This is on Terry Gross. Very sophisticated show, very uh, intellectual. You know what I'm saying? Defund the police. Yes, well, uh, we found that the problem is the police, and since the police is the problem, <laughs> Uh, what, we, what we propose as a solution is that rather than the police, you have the social worker. And the next, so the, Terry Gross on asked the obvious next, well, is the social worker armed? <laughs> the, talk, the talk therapy don't work. <laughs> no, they, no, they're going to come with the sophisticated language. <laughs> sophisticated language and, and administer social psychological therapy informed by Franz Fanon, black skin, white mask on the spot. <laughs> so even black people who have a conflictual and contentious relationship with policing, said, get the F out of here. Are you crazy? <laughs> Do you see that cat down the street there at the back house? He don't give a fuck about nobody talking about talk. You got to disarm this cat, man. So if I call 911 and say, excuse me, we're transferring you to the Department of Social Work. They'll handle this. <laughs> so it was, I mean, but, but you see what I'm saying? It, they were given carte blanche. That's another way of saying, given freedom. Say what you want. Because up the rhetoric in order to get a political effect. So we want to prove that the radicals and the lefts and the progressives are really controlling the Democratic Party because we out here and we marching and Black Lives Matter and we got Antifa down with us and all. Oh. That was a hard, that was a summer of real difficulty. Because, you know, like when you see a lot of BS and you know it's BS, not that I'd ever seen this before, but I'm talking too much, I'm sorry. But you've been around the block a few times. You know a BS artist when you see one. You know, even when they come in a little smiley white face <laughs> and use academic, you say, this is a hustler. Try to hustle me, dog. Mm -hmm. You know, this ain't got no relationship to the real. And that's what a hustle is, to separate you from your money. But first, got to separate you from reality. Separate you from a real anchorage. Okay. In the midst of Black Lives Matter, in the midst of this thing of the police have to be not reformed, not radicalized, not controlled by people, government, and other, but abolished. 
in the midst of this, and not only because of this, and no one knows all the reasons, a rise of crime in urban areas. Therefore, on the ground, take Philadelphia. Let's go, not just Philadelphia in general, let's go to Cobbs Creek. Cobbs Creek, stable working class, middle class professional, all mixed in, homeowners. You know? They have had it up the ears. And have said, they said to my friend Sandra, very brilliant woman, as I told you all before, she's like a political operative, a machine politician type of person. Uh, she's not an office holder, but she's one of those that puts people in office. Mm -hmm. She gets out that vote. She told me about the anger of ordinary people, people who are church people using the MF word. You know what I'm saying? I'm not voting. They think I'm, you know, they're just going to use me again and again and nothing in return. And then the murder rate. And then crass will all come back to. Those three things have undermined what constitutes the voting base of the Democratic Party. Inflation, persistence of COVID, and the rise of violent crime. Not just a cat, you know, breaking into your car. They don't even consider that a crime no more. A shoplifting, that's not a crime. So none of that. We're talking about hardcore, you know, pistol in the face, drive down, the sh you know, just shoot up a whole block you know, randomness without boundaries. Uh, and the murder rate in Philadelphia is at an all-time high. This is producing anxiety on a level that you cannot imagine. People are afraid. I'm going to come back to Krasnodar. I won't get this Democratic. But probably, and there have been many tipping points but probably the one that kind of tipped it over the edge was this young woman, 31 years old, who had, they, her family and friends had just given her a baby shower. And she was coming home and she was unloading her gifts from the back of her car, trunk of her car. And someone came up and shot her to death and the baby. Okay, got some media attention, but it's no quote big thing. Mm -hmm. But it is for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to wait for the media to tell us what time of day it is. Mm -hmm. Something different is happening mm -hmm. qualitatively. It's not just the numbers, the numbers are significant, but something is going on. Mm -hmm. This is a political. And all three of these, as you can see, are politically consequential events. If the government cannot protect its citizens, if I feel unsafe in my house, even though the police station is right around the corner, and everybody know where the gun house is, if I cannot, what good is government? And why do you get, get me out here to vote? Okay. Now, 
Biden's polling numbers are lower than any president at this stage in his career, in his presidency, less than a year. Now, you can't, all the polls are not the same. And that's not to say that some are good and some are good. Polling is an imprecise science and it's highly weaponized and politicized. Certain polls are always going to tell you uh, the Democrats are winning and can't lose. They said that about Hillary Clinton and they said uh, Biden was going to win and Trump was going to be, a, and it you know, wasn't quite like that. Certain polls like the Rasmussen poll and the Trafalgar poll have a way of tapping into a broader sentiment than some of these other polls do. The ones that were more accurate about the last two presidential elections show Biden's polling numbers to be lower. In other words, Biden and I think the Rasmussen poll, if I read just the other day, is 40% in favor and 57% against. In other words, he's 17 points underwater. Mm -hmm. He can't make that up ever, mm -hmm. ever. The more favorable polls to the Democratic Party at best show something like 43, 43, okay, that's 86, so 14% undecided, you know what I'm saying? You don't know what way they might go. But I'm saying, if you take uh, an average of all the polls, Biden, as they say, is underwater. But then there's the other problem. And this is, how could you say, the human problem of politics, of, quote, democracy, not the quotes. Because what we're talking about are contending forces within the framework of a certain state system. In other words, we can argue, fuss, and fight all night and day long. But the bottom line is the, the, the forces that control the state make it possible for us to debate. Mm -hmm. In other words, we are not challenging the state power, the ruling elite. We're just challenging each other. Like me and Emily, we fuss and fight, mm -hmm. but we accept mm -hmm. that the state, the sovereign as they call it, makes it possible that we can fuss and fight. And because we can fuss and fight, we call that democracy right. without any consideration of who is controlling the state, which is, we'll get back to that in a minute. So the progressives thought that Biden's election was because of them. That is the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, the, uh, what is it? I was going to say the swamp, the uh, squad. The squad. <laughs> <laughs> the swamp is bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, the swamp is bigger than that. Yeah. So they, you know, they thought, oh, Dick, we did this. So Congresswoman Jayapal from out the 
the, the great state of Washington mm -hmm. on the West Coast, and she's the head of the Progressive Caucus, mm -hmm. and they got 90 members, and they're going to flex their muscles, mm -hmm. and they're going to say, we're not going to vote for Joe Biden's $3.5 trillion, you know, to fight climate change, to give everybody a free shot at um, a, a community college and everything is everything. If I get this 3.5 trillion and I'll be the greatest progressive president since Franklin D. Roosevelt. So they, they said, no, we're gonna play brinksmanship with the centrist. Now they know, ain't no Republicans gonna vote for that, that 3.5, but they did get a bipartisan vote in the Senate on the 1.5 trillion or infrastructure that is bridge, road, bridges, roads, you know, that kind of thing, train tracks. Okay. I think they got 10 Republicans in the Senate. But in the in the House of Representatives, the progressive Democrats said, well, we ain't gonna vote on that, you know, the hard infrastructure until we get a vote on the social infrastructure. You dig what I'm saying? <laughs> so they, they, they were saying, we, we come to the table. We progressives are coming to the table with a constituency. We're coming with a hardcore voice and we back down in the past, but we ain't backing down no more. You understand? Well, you, you get the picture. We're going, we're going toe to toe with the centrist, uh, <clears throat> with the ruling class. Okay. So until the Virginia election. And what was that guy's name? Uh, Youngkin. Youngkin, Youngkin. <laughs> I, I call him Youngkin. <laughs> but Youngkin, <laughs> ain't nobody never heard of it. And he wins in a purple state or a blue state that is a democratic state. He wins over a ruling class Democrat. And then everybody said, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when all sides in the Democratic Party made a kind of truce. Mm -hmm. They said, look at it here. You can't get 3.5 trillion, but you think of two. And the two got down to 1.8 trillion. Last I looked, it was down to 175 mm -hmm. and falling fast. <laughs> and they keep putting Schumer, and he he about two steps behind Biden <laughs> in terms <laughs> of the mental thing. <laughs> he said, we're going to have a vote on this by Christmas. Well, Christmas next week. So <laughs> don't think we make Christmas. So we did faction party. But, but then you get the same, not the same, but a fracturing split within the White House itself. Biden can't run nothing. You know, he has to take his medication, he has to sleep. You know, so they bring him out when they can, put him back in. You know, even during, and I'm not making fun of a cat who is frail. But you know, but you have to compare the guy. Well, he was he was like a a thug <laughs> in a beautiful suit <laughs> and a kleptocrat. <laughs> Everybody in his family get paid. Son Biden <laughs> on the pike, <laughs> but he still get paid. <laughs> he is on the pike. 
um, his brother is getting paid. His sister, you understand? Everybody getting paid. You know, all they when they go to a foreign country, they say, uh, I'm coming here on behalf of the vice president of the United States. I said, Well, how do we know that? Can't break out his license. You see, my name is Biden. <laughs> and he's getting paid. You understand? But he can't, he's incapable now. So who will control the White House? So everybody asks, where's Kamala? Mm. Ain't nobody seen Kamala. <laughs> Let me tell you what's gonna happen. Two factions, mm -hmm. Hillary and Obama. And the Hillary people, which are also the Joe Biden, say never forgave, see Kamala, did Biden dirty in the debates? Mm -hmm. Remember that? Yeah. When she said, I was the person <laughs> trying to ride on that bus to go to school. <laughs> but you wasn't right. You was up in Canada. Ain't nobody checked on the bus. <laughs> she went to school in Canada. <laughs> you know, she tried to play the race car. I'm a, I'm a black civil rights woman. You know, to, well, let me tell you, just so y'all y'all can't get all of this, because it's just too much at one time. <laughs> you ever see the painting of the uh, federal agents with the little girl? They're taking her into the schoolhouse in Little Rock, Arkansas, somewhere. I don't know. But that's an iconic <laughs> painting, right? <laughs> Kamala trying to be, act like she's that um, <laughs> And you blocked the door so I couldn't get in. <laughs> so she did that on. And the man, he, he brain didn't confuse anyway. So he couldn't answer. He couldn't say, wait a minute, baby, you was up in Canada. <laughs> he, but they never forgave her. She also went after him on the Me Too, remember? When he had accusations against uh, oh, yeah. women staffers, accused him. She attacked him on the debate on that. Also. She attacked him on that, on yeah. Me So she yeah. got him on Me Too yeah. and on racial discrimination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you was against busing when I was trying to get on the bus so I could get an equal education. Equal education. Both of your both your parents are professors. Hey, you weren't sure you had an equal education. <laughs> but anyway, she played, and then still couldn't go beyond one percent in the poll. But okay, <laughs> so Obama and them put a lot of pressure on Biden. It's very that period after he got the nomination, they say he's weak. You know. We don't know if we can beat Trump because Trump is a campaign. He'll go out here and rile up his people. We don't know if we can beat him. So we have to make a compromise with the Obama thing to bring these two Clinton and Obama forces together, the two major political movements in the Democratic Party. So they asked Obama and them, well, what y'all want? We want a black woman as a vice president. Oh, okay. So this would be a historic. Thing. This will show how progressive the Democrats are. So they couldn't find her. One woman they wanted, come to find out, she's a congresswoman from Southern California, that she was down with the Cuban Revolution back in her <laughs> days. So, although she denounced it since. You know, <laughs> she, then they had somebody. So they, 
Uh, so they ended up with Kamala. Kamala is a senator from the largest state in the union, which was a mistake tactically because you didn't need California, so you didn't need her. You know, it would have been better to get a black woman from, let us say, Georgia. Mm -hmm. You understand? Or, or Pennsylvania, even, you know, one of them swing states. But anyway, they figure that, well, she'd get out the black women's vote. And you heard this narrative that black women, we stand up for the Democratic Party, even when black men get, they don't want, that don't say nothing all that much about them. I mean, you've been hoodwinked. You drank the Kool-Aid more, you know, but that's this black women are the base of the, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. not, it, it, look, please, it's just to try, it's a kind of seduction of people. You know, oh, you so, like, like, oh, you so down with us now on election day, but after election day, don't hear nothing, but you love black women up until, you know, all that old. So anyway, they got her, and they got her now. The struggle within the White House is so intense that they shut her down. Now, the problem is that if they come with the 25th Amendment and say, look, Biden is incapable of continuing as the, um, as the um, president of the United States, which they could say, you know, of course, he is. He can't. He can't do it. They say, "Well, well, how are you gonna get him out of there?" We said, "Well, we can get Nancy Pelosi and a couple other people to come and say we're gonna impose the Twenty Fifth Amendment on you. You got to get out of here, dog." And they say, "Well, suppose no one leaves, so we bring the cops in here, arrest his ass, take him on out." But they said, "Well, if we get him out, and all we got is Kamala." And don't nobody like her, and we in worse trouble with the masses than with Biden. Last question. Get all back home. There's an essay. Um, I think Joe Miles, maybe Joe talked about it. That was in the New York Times. I could, I could um, text it to people. Last week, I think. Something like that by a guy that writes regularly. And the thing that's, I forget, I think his name is, but the thing important about his commentary in the New York Times op ed op ed page is that he's always citing a lot of research, academic, and then also journalistic articles and such. And what he shows in this article. What, they, what they're saying across the board. Quote, democracy is in crisis. Mm -hmm. It might not survive. That the nation is so divided that, um, that democracy as we know it and the peaceful transition of power might not survive. They're right. There is a democratic crisis. But it is not the crisis that they're saying. The crisis is an almost irreversible split between the broad masses of people and the ruling class. 
what they are really saying is can the boom in the glass hold on to power? The old question, can the ruling class rule in the old way and the masses prepared to be ruled in the old way? Very simple question. In bourgeois political, political science, they refer to it as a crisis of legitimacy. The people do not see their rulers as legitimate. They do not see the institutions of the ruling class as legitimate. Expressing, I don't believe you. The election was stolen. COVID is a trick. I mean, whatever they call the conspiracy theory, some of them are. It's a crisis of legitimacy. We have never seen this since the formation of what they call Madisonian democracy. Mm -hmm. Not even at the time of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in the history of this country that we face what they call a democratic crisis. The ruling elites are in a state of dark evil. I, you know, I listen to all of the shows and read everything I can. Sadly, <laughs> we're not for the preschool. I'd be walking around. Oh shoot! I'd be up there in Kensington trying to get some fat. No, I'd be all messed up. I'm only joking. That is a joke. I mean, I'm acting out a Richard Pryor skit, but no. <laughs> These are dark days for the ruling class. Very dark days. It's not just the Trump people. As I've tried to show, in Philadelphia, if you take the three things, inflation, COVID, and violent crime, Black people are so close to en masse abandoning the Democratic Party. They are angry. In some ways, the anger I see and what my friend uh, Sandra wrote about in her experience, that anger might be deeper than the anger that the Trump people feel towards the Republican Party elite or the elites in general. Black people, it's, it's like this thing. Um, it's like love. If you love somebody with all your heart and all your soul and you give everything and you did, did this for a number of years and then all of a sudden they come to you and say, look, the last five years I've had an outside relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, see that's, you know, that, that's, a, you know, that's a justifiable homicide case right there. Uh, if you know what I'm saying? Wait, a lot of people have gotten off on that. Yeah, crime of passion. Yeah, crime of passion. Yeah, well, you, you, I done worked for you. I done paid for you to go to graduate school. I done had children and raised them and stayed at home while you partied and read. And now you're going to come to me after you get your PhD and tell me you've been gone with one of your graduate student friends. <laughs> hey. 
You got to die. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying, I use You don't the, get off. You don't get off. You, no, get, you get a lesser sentence. You get, you get, all right, so you do three years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless. In the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> My point is, the sense of betrayal is yeah. just that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We put you first. You put us last all the time. The resentment is deep. Politicians, black politicians, can't go into black neighborhoods. Oh, we're going to hold a community meeting. Black people come there and say, "Oh, no, you're not. You ain't going to hold nothing up in here. Get the fuck out of here." You understand? That is how deep it is. It is a different kind of anger, a different sense of betrayal, and it is this very deep. Like, I say all that, we do fit now. The question is, what comes next? One, there are elections, but elections do not tell the whole story. You know, the Democrats are gonna get wiped out. They'll probably lose in 2024 as, as it looks right now. You're probably looking at a second Trump term if he wants it. You know, there is nobody oppose them. The Democrats have nobody. They're already on CNN talking about, we got 11 people who could replace Biden. <laughs> 11 people. Then they put them up there. Kamala Harris, the governor of Illinois, who was overweight, might not make it. <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, and, not, and the other nine you ain't never heard of. Ain't nobody never heard of Oh yeah, boot, boot a check, boot a check. Oh, and then, booty. <laughs> chill, chill. Okay. I'm sorry, I have to introduce certain concepts I can't introduce to children. But no, boot a check. Um, AOC tried to bring it, but they they can't. They have no base, and the Democratic Party is not trusted. By the people. This was the last time for them. They shot their best load and now they have nothing. What will the ruling class do? What can they do? It's no one can predict at this point, but we are facing a political crisis the nation has ever faced. I'll stop on this. Then we, we can go to Larry Krasman in a minute. But I just wanted to set that up. I know that uh, Jerry and uh, Joe got some things to bring out too. Who wants to Joe, go first because you're talking about that that data. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey, look, if I talk too long, y'all forgive me. <laughs> I had to throw some jokes <laughs> because we all be on drugs if we just if we don't laugh. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this uh, polling data which came out uh, similar to what Doc was saying. So there was a, there was a poll done, actually the, um, the actual uh, like a surveying and all that was done in February, but the poll was compiled and whatever analysis was done in October of uh, Americans' attitudes. Actually, it was, it was done in a number of Western countries or advanced industrial countries. Uh, 
and uh would say mean white yeah, yeah but it could also included like south korea and then maybe japan the data on the u.s actually was the most stark in comparison to all the other uh, nations, which were, although they were all they were all bad in terms of their citizens' attitudes towards their political systems, pretty much all the Western countries had over fifty percent of people who were dissatisfied with the way their system was working. Um, and then there was a specific question about whether um, you feel that uh, your political system needs to be needs to have major changes. In, or needs to be completely reformed. And so the people who made up those two categories include uh, those included over 85% of the American survey. So in other words, 85% of Americans, when asked about their democracy, uh, their political system, I should say, say that it needs to be completely reformed or needs major changes. Um, and then when they asked about the economic system, yeah. What is the breakdown between reform and major change? That's a good question. I think it was uh, it was it was fairly even. I think, but it also it's not not defined exactly the yes. difference between yes. that sort of thing between major reforms or you know complete change. You know, the other thing is this was taken back in February, but even back then in the economic system, they said that sixty six percent of people also said the same thing that the economic system needs major reform or uh, these major change or completely be reformed. And I think if they were to do it now, it would probably be, I don't know, maybe 80% uh, similar. And then similar number 76% said the same thing about the healthcare system as well. Um, and I think that would also be higher given the situation with COVID. Uh, so, and I think in the countries that they surveyed generally, which include the, uh, like I, we were saying, all the advanced industrial nations, it was about 56% that, that had held this view, including you know, France, Germany, but it was uh, over two thirds in Italy, Spain, the US, South Korea, France, Belgium, and Japan. So all that holds, I mean, it basically shows that this crisis of legitimacy, crisis of the political system, which is essentially a crisis of democracy, again, tying it to the democracy summit, maybe Jeremiah will talk a little bit about, but it shows how the US and its major allies the whole Western world and uh, these two countries in Asia, which are closely tied to the Western system, all of them, there's mass dissatisfaction. And I mean, this is all stuff we've been talking about in preschool. That's why you talk about Trump. You talk about these other populists, which are emerging in Europe. Um, it's, it's basically this, a similar type of thing. Um, and yeah, this also went across party lines. This is both Republican leaning people and Democratic leaning people. Uh, interesting, there's another, uh, a statistic in here which said that 58% of the US public was not confident that the system could change. The system is capable of change, in other words. Um, so yeah, there's a, and you, you talked about the uh, Biden's polls. I was looking a little bit into that also. Mm -hmm. uh, there, was, there was a poll done by, a, there was an aggregate, an aggregate of different polls actually done by this website called 538.com. And it showed that if you aggregate all the polls, 50.8% disapprove of Biden right now, and only 43% approve. So that would include the ones that are favorable to the Democrats and unfavorable. 
Um, interestingly, Congress uh, disapproval in the same aggregate poll is 77%. Mm -hmm. Disapprove of the job Congress is doing. Another very interesting number was by a CNN poll, which showed that two thirds of Americans doubt that they can trust Biden. Two thirds. Yeah, two thirds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a poll commissioned by CNN. Um, yeah, I, I won't say too much about the democracy summit. I'll let uh, Jeremiah talk about that. But another poll also showed that uh, less than half of Americans uh, trust major corporations, including the news media, but also big private corporations, big tech companies. Those also have a lot of distrust. Um, and I, uh, another poll which we talked about in the past, uh, last spring, when the first uh, edition of this democracy summit had happened in, uh, I think it was held in Denmark, I believe it was in Europe, the first summit. Um, but at that time, that Alliance of Democracies Foundation, which is basically, again, an organization uh, founded by these different governments and kind of closely connected to NATO, they did a survey of 50,000 respondents in 53 countries to find out uh, what people view as the greatest threat to democracy as part of their uh, attempt to build this uh, coalition of democracies against, you know, so-called authoritarian regimes. But interestingly, that poll showed of all the countries, when they asked people, which country do you think is the biggest threat uh, to democracy, they had expected that, it was, that people were going to say Russia or China. But it ended up that 44% uh, of respondents, which is the largest for any country, said that the United States is the greatest threat to democracy in the world. <laughs> and then when they asked what single biggest factor is the greatest threat, 64% said it's actually economic inequality which shows that people all over the world are very concerned about uh, these economic um, issues. And so I think a, a lot of that, I mean, it, to the extent that we need hard data that backs up a lot of what we've been talking about, the mass distrust in the most acute in the United States among the American masses, most acute. most acute, but then generally in the West as well, it's a crisis of the West. Uh, we could say, you know, Du Bois would say this is a crisis of the Western civilization, that in, in the West, and in the Asian nations, which are most trying to uh, copy the West, there's mass dissatisfaction with the political system, the economic system, uh, the way of life. And uh, that's a huge obstacle in uh, building the so-called you know, alliance or coalition of, of democracies, of the Western understanding uh, of democracy. Um, and also, you know, I mean, there's a lot in what you said that, that uh, I'm thinking about, but I mean, even this thing of uh, the idea that, oh, okay, we have, uh, I mean, these progressives, let's say in Congress, like that's supposed to be an argument for, okay, we have a democratic system. Like, okay, you don't love everything about Biden, but you have these progressives. But then when, as you're describing, I mean, the progressives are so spineless, <laughs> not really willing to challenge the administration. I mean, I think, I think that that crisis is even worse than before because I think in, in living memory before you used to have some people in Congress that would actually, you know, um, grill the administration, actually put up a fight, you know, actually because, you know, people elect you to that position where you have, you know, you have this pulpit, you have some power, especially in the House of Representatives. I mean, you're supposed to be a representative. Mm -hmm. And so you always had a few voices historically that were um, challenging, especially challenging the war consensus, you know? Uh, I, was, I was listening to an interview with uh, Cynthia McKinney, who's a former uh, representative from Georgia, who was kind of pushed out of uh, uh, mainstream politics because of her 
positions on things, but she was describing a lot of what you were saying. She was like, yeah, it, we used to have in the black community, we used to have like, people used to vote because they used to feel like, okay, I can elect a representative that would speak for me, that would use whatever power they have. And, you know, um, that would, for example, with Cynthia McKinney, like she was holding the Bush administration accountable, grilling the uh, defense secretary, asking questions, what's happening with the Iraq war? What's happening with weapons of mass destruction? Um, you know, other people would would uh, would do this, challenge the kinds of racist policies that existed. But she, you know, she talked about how with Obama, that the whole thing was a wave of trying to destroy any uh, semblance of that independent black or working class uh, mm -hmm. politics, and replace it with this new wave of basically, you know, people who would just be faces for uh, the same agenda. And I mean, she was very critical of the squatters, which is the squatter totally spineless people who are just yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a veneer of trying to show an opposition, which is not really an opposition, just there. It's a, it's an opposition that's just there to, uh, you know, like you were saying, prevent people from leaving. I mean, like the AOCs, and um, I mean, AOC was supposedly elected as this, you know great outsider. She beat some veteran politician in uh, New York. But, uh, and she's like, okay, I'm going to challenge Nancy Pelosi. But now she's like, oh, Nancy Pelosi's mama bear. <laughs> There's another interview I saw with, uh, it was actually a conversation between AOC and Noam Chomsky. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that? I, I missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not much, <laughs> much you learn from it. But it just shows you the fact that they're, you know, they're both, uh, Chomsky is supposed to be the greatest, you know, dissident, progressive, intellectual, and AOC is supposed to be the greatest dissident, progressive politician. They're both on the same page as far as it goes. They're both like, okay, we need to work for the Green New Deal. We need to work to, to fight the far right threat against the Biden administration. Sadly, that, that's also the narrative being pushed by the common remnants of the Communist Party. USA. They're like the biggest priority is defending the Biden administration from the far right, far right threat. You know, um, so so anyway, this is all showing us. And then the any the only actual uh dissident voices, the only actual voices of opposition, basically the Trump coalition. That's being suppressed, not just smeared and suppressed, but you know, they're going after them legally with these cases. They're trying to disqualify them from participating in elections. Hillary Clinton is already making the round saying, oh, Trump is trying to steal 2024. <laughs> you know, yeah, we're trying to close Hillary as well. Yeah, yeah I think she might be trying to make a comeback too. You know, and, and, and as we were discussing with the left there, some of them will criticize uh, the Russiagate narrative, but they won't talk about what is the Russiagate targeting. I mean, it's not just about Trump the man. It's about stopping this uh, mass opposition to uh, war, to, uh, you know, imperial expansion, to aggression. The, it's about trying to repress the mass mood for peaceful coexistence and restructuring of the um, economy. I think we're probably going to see things worse than Russiagate. I mean, there's Russiagate, then there's January 6th gate. I don't know what gate is coming next. And then there's Julian Assange. There's Julian Assange, definitely, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, uh, within the Trump coalition, there are people who are actually very supportive of Julian Assange and who are like on some of these support, I mean, right wing websites, they're interviewing Julian Assange's family and talking about like why we need to support Julian Assange in his battle against, in their words, the 
globalist empire, um, which I think is all good. I mean, it shows how there's a there's an emergence of this critical um, thinking uh, against uh, this ruling elite consensus, and uh, so I think that's really that hopes that holds some some possibility for democracy more so than uh, the ruling elite attempting to speak uh, in the name of uh, democracy. Go ahead, Jerry. Um, so just a follow-up on Jahan. Um, last week, we talked briefly about the democracy summit that Biden had pulled together. And I think this was like the official summit for democracy, like the one that happened in early this month was like the first time they were like doing this like specific um, kind of convention. I think it, it may have been slightly different from the democracy. Yeah, I think the earlier one was more like civil society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Cause they were like a lot of news outlets were pointing out that even during the cold war, the US didn't stage this kind of summit, quote unquote summit for of democratic countries. Um, so it shows the, the stakes, I think of, you know, how they're trying to basically like the whole, everyone I think in the media was reporting, like clearly this is aimed at Russia and China. Um, and also there was a lot of fuss about who was invited, who was not invited. Cause they, I mean, yeah, that's the interesting thing is it's like- Jerry, yeah. just, um, could you just tell everybody what the summit was? Just so yeah, a lot of yeah. people might not know. Right, so this was like supposed to, like one of Biden's big ideas was to host a summit of democratic countries because you know democracy is threatened basically and um and I think, actually it goes yeah. back to 2018 this alliance of this foundation for democracies biden helped started back in 2018 when trump was still president and was on the board because it, it basically was a reaction to the trump uh, you know yeah uh, administration um and so they invited like over a hundred different countries but I think a decent number of them um, declined. So only like about 89 showed up, like Pakistan didn't show up. South they're, Africa. Yeah, they're like, thank you, but <laughs> rather not. Um, and yeah, I think I mentioned at least last week that like the official State Department live feed of the summit was only getting like 70 views as in mm -hmm. streaming live. Um, and I think I, I checked back on those official videos and it was like, maybe a couple thousand views, like six or 7,000. And then like videos of like from news outlets, like Reuters and stuff was maybe a little higher, like 15 to 20,000. But for, for reference, videos that were criticizing the Democracy Summit received 10 to 20 times more views, okay. like 200,000 views, you know? Um, there was like this YouTube channel called like The Hill, which is like a news outlet, but they have like this show called Rising and this video that they were doing criticizing and basically pointing out how hypocritical it was. Um, was it receiving like, yeah, 10 to 20 times more than the actual summit itself. Um, and yeah, I think basically the gist that I got was like, either Americans didn't know it was happening or like they saw it was happening and didn't care. Um, and also what's interesting is that, I don't know if there was like coordination, but recently YouTube removed uh, the ability to see dislikes on a video, mm -hmm. be, supposedly to protect like small independent creators, but it's more so because every video that the Biden administration puts out is always universally disliked by like way more than the number of likes. And so 
Um, I think that was a strategic thing that YouTube has been doing, <laughs> basically to make to, to make protect Biden. yeah to protect the Biden administration. Um, and yeah, I think like because the purpose basically of this was to like to like rally support for the U.S.'s Cold War agenda against Russia and China. I think um, both domestically but also internationally, like it's not, they're not really able to muster up the support from it. Because I think, I, I was actually curious of like what your perspective was, because at least I think during the cold, like the first Cold War, a good number of the American people were ideologically in support of it. And they believed in the American project um, and the sort of um, slogan of democracy that was being pushed. But, even, but today it's like the level of support amongst the American people is way, way lower. Um, than it was during the first Cold War, which was, I think, yeah, which was an important factor in basically what led to the um, the outcome of that. Um, and yeah, I think there was an interesting New York Times op-ed, which was basically saying like, you know, everyone's criticizing Biden for holding this democracy summit because you know we have all of these problems and how can the U.S. host this and also. Why are they picking and choosing certain countries to invite and non invite? But then this New York Times op ed was basically saying, like, actually, like, we should be more optimistic. Like, we have, we still have a lot to defend. And the Biden administration has a lot to be proud of, whatever. And they defined democracy as, quote, a regime in which incumbents lose elections and leave office in a year. Like, literally, the most narrow view of what a democracy is. And obviously it's all aimed at like the yeah. January 6th thing of basically being like, if the January, if January 6th had succeeded, then our democracy would have failed. Um, and because they're also, they're very, I think the Western media is very conscious now that, that especially China is pushing its own, like asserting its own um, understanding of what democracy is and what Chinese whole process democracy, as they call it, mm -hmm. um, as a model or as um, an actual functioning democracy. And the way that Western media tries to spin it is that basically Russia and China are saying that democracy means whether you can de deliver growth and stability for your people. But then the New York Times is saying, actually, no, like democracy means when you can have like a transfer of elections or something, That's you know, and um, wow. Why don't you say a little bit more about that? That's very, very important. Yeah, well, what the definition of democracy right. is. Like it's, it has nothing to do with the rule of the people, right. the will of the yeah. people. It has nothing to do with war or poverty. You know, like the boy, I think that was very eye-opening for a lot of us was reading how Du Bois was defining democracy and what is the greatest threat to democracy and him saying that it's imperialism and poverty as the greatest threat and not even fascism, you know? Um, and yeah, like the fact that they're doubling down on like, actually democracy is when people lose elections. You know, it's like, they're really panicked. Like it shows a level of panic, but also like that they, they're, they're conscious that like, they don't, as, as the Chinese government is saying, like US doesn't hold the monopoly on defining what democracy is basically. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, yeah, like there's the, um, the that guy Timothy Snyder, who is the Yale professor, who is basically advising like the council of um, business leaders who had to swoop in during January sixth and basically quote unquote defend democracy. Um, I think he was interviewed by the Washington Post, um, basically to defend the 
like underlying purpose of the democracy summit and saying um yeah like it's it's important to have this summit because it's important to name democracy as an aspiration um and we spent too long imagining that democracy is a normal state of affairs that democracy is something everybody wants but clearly you know the trump movement and also russia and china show that maybe not everybody wants democracy um, and he says but yeah yeah so this is this is how this yale professor presents it he says the russians present democracy as a joke the chinese present it as a mess both U.S. adversaries are, effect, are effective in undermining a system of government that too often is taken for granted. And he says, my basic background point is that democracy is always a struggle and it's never the status quo. The idea that people should rule is a radical idea and one and one you have to make sacrifices for or it will ruin. <laughs> and so, yeah. And he's directing somebody's dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, that was uh, the main stuff to that. Oh, okay. Well, it, it, you know, it's interesting because uh, there, the, the U.S. ruling elite is basically defining democracy as uh, basically democracy is when you don't have the exercise of popular power, right? right? Oh. So they're like, okay, you have a government which is popular, which is, I mean, popular in the sense of serving the people, you know, representative of the people and delivering to the people. You have to have this bourgeois uh legal method of limiting that you know you have to leave office after a certain amount of time you have to be impeached whether you're whether you're the trump movement or you're trump as a popular leader or you're the chinese government as people's democracy or you're putin or whoever you are you have to uh basically follow these rules i mean that's not the thing with procedural democracy like we're talking procedural democracy but who who defines the procedure? Who is the procedure working for? The procedure, the procedure, okay, it, it originates in you know the bourgeois revolutions of Europe or the United States. And in that sense, it was a reaction and opposition to the uh, feudal control of society. But you know, in, in 2021, the world is different. There's there's the masses of people, there's the worker, there's the workers, there's the peasants, there's the poor, there's the, as we said, the angry and the dispossessed. And these procedures are being used by the elite to try to control, contain this uh, popular expression of what could be a higher stage of democracy. Right. And uh, here it's become very moribund. I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of, I mean, the US is becoming the sick man of the West. It's <laughs> called the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Asia, the sick man of, you know, of, of the West, basically. Best, I mean, sad to say, but best symbolized by the president. They also call us the drug addict of the yeah, West. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, this COVID mass also. This COVID mass and the uh whole people's anger at, at Fauci and uh, pharmaceutical companies and the suppression of any discussion on that also um by big tech so anyway the, the also well I, I also want to say um, uh as Jeremiah was saying like in some ways I think it's a two big mistakes that Biden administration is doing and uh, I think uh, diplomatically they made a big mistake and are making a big mistake in going after a Ukraine and Taiwan pushing those tensions at the same time yeah. it's a huge mistake because you're putting your two adversaries giving them a reason to work together even more but the other big mistake with this the democracy summit is you're uh bringing this into internet this uh thing of democracy this as an issue into uh debate on the global stage and you're gonna lose yeah you're not prepared at all <laughs> you're not intellectually prepared and your own democracy is such a mess yeah, right. 
And uh, I mean, a lot of the analyses I've seen, they've talked about how the summit is basic, it, 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 it's struggling to work because US democracy is in such a mess. And even Biden's speech talk basically was hinting a lot at the domestic situation. And so you're not prepared. And I think that's also why uh, it's, it's a losing uh, fight uh, ideologically, uh, you know, uh, in the for the U.S. in the minds of the people of the world, like they they are really seeing like oh, U.S. democracy is being exposed. I mean, it's a it's a process, a slow process, but uh, you're seeing that happen. The image is unraveling at the same time that the empire is physically unraveling. I mean, in addition to inflation, we've seen so much the the defeat in Afghanistan. That was a shock. I mean, as much as inflation, that was a huge that's a huge thing for the people of the world to see the U.S. leaving. Um, failure of that of that effort and i think it's a matter of time before we see some something similar in iraq and other places other areas the u.s is u.s troops are um this whole situation in ethiopia which has not been talked about that much but it's again a situation in which uh, the biden administration policies are failing that regime change um and you're seeing the multipolar world so so anyway, it's the dysfunctional U.S. state that's just being um, and disposed. It seems like it's even going to get worse. There are some Facebook comments. Oh, we have some time. Um, well, there's lots of people tuning in today, so I'll just list a few of them. Um, Veronica Ancrum's watching. Kim Palmier, Dedra, Amit Kumar. Says good morning, Professor. I'm not sure if you know Amit Kumar. Grady says hello. Um, Nuri from Seoul is watching. Yvonne says hello. But in response to what you asked earlier, Doc, when you said, what can the ruling class do today? Or what can they do now? Um, Stephen Palmier says they can start a war. Uh -huh. mm. um, Nabila says, just like you started out saying how education is major in forming the character of the young, the colleges don't want you to help form the character of the post high schoolers. They don't want the students to love you for what you bring and how you expand their worldviews, which is very true. Um, and then Daniel Lee Eisenberg Jacob says, all of Doc's comments, and this goes back to democracy, all of Doc, it goes back to democracy. And, um, what you're saying and also what Jahan and Jeremiah added in. Daniel says, all of Doc's comments about the left at the beginning of his remarks are awesome. I'm cheering him from Twitter. I think one of the biggest obstacles in the present is the assumption shared across the political spectrum that the Democrats to the left, that the Democrats are to the left of the Republicans. Even when the left says they hate the Democrats or call them spineless or imperialist or that they betray them, the problem is that they are still more comfortable with the Democrats. This is an ideological attachment. The common approach going back to the 30s for the American left is that a reconstituted left would come out of a split of the Democratic Party. I have had people tell me it would, it would look like how the Republicans put the Whigs. The left rewatered the Democrats with the New Deal, rewatered them again with the McGovern-Fraser Commission, and now they have done the same with quote-unquote Democratic Socialism. It is some straight-up BS. It is possible to have two right wings. That the Republicans are right wing doesn't make the Democrats to the left of them. The left should not define itself against the right, but this is what the left did against Trump. When he said yes, they said no. They followed his lead under the name of resistance. That is not political leadership. 
I think the emergence of a true left would not be a split either from the Republicans or the Democrats, but would come would cut across the political spectrum, reconstruct how we understand left and right. It would draw from Democrats, Republicans, and non-political. I think what should define the left is raising the horizon of emancipation. This is ideological and practical, not sensibility, demographic, or legislation. The right is the liquidation of that possibility. And then Veronica says, I will never vote for the Democratic Party again, and I prefer to stay home and not vote at all. And then Michelle says, who just joined in, says, what kind of school teaches anti-democracy, quote unquote, popular power when the popular vote, which does, which does represent the people, is ignored, even tried to be violently overthrown. That is completely contrary to this discussion for autocracy that this little group seems to have. Could you say that? What kind of, we got a chance? I'm just talking about preschool. What kind of school teaches anti-democracy? I think, which is, well, I think it's a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. Um, pop, quote, unquote, popular power. When the, popu when the popular vote, which does represent the people, is ignored, even tried to be violently overthrown. I think she's talking about January 6th. Mm -hmm. That is completely contrary to this discussion for autocracy. Well, so Michelle thinks that a free school is promoting autocracy. Okay. What okay. is the quote, unquote, ruling class? Michelle asks. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's it. Oh. Brady. Brady adds in, <laughs> what is a good and a better ideological response to America's divisions? What is good and a better ideological answer to America's divisions? Is the objective of the good and better response is unity? Is the objective of the good and the whole, is the objective of the good and the better response is wholeness? Is quote unquote united and quote unquote whole a distinction without a difference? That is to say, six of one, a half dozen of the other. I'll try to get this right. If you say yes to my last question, do this go to your nearest bakery and ask for a united loaf of bread. Go to another bakery and ask for a whole loaf of bread. What's the distinction between the two scenarios? Is the distinction between the two scenarios one with an actual difference? If it is, then the distinction between united and whole is also one with a difference. What do all these questions have to do with the divisions in America and the collapse of the ruling class? Stay tuned to stay in. Sorry to free school. Praying here. <laughs> well, I think I think all these comments are great because I think the topic of conversation that we're having with the free school today and that all these past weeks have been building up to is the quintessential question of our time the crisis is one of democracy even the definition of democracy but it also explains like we were saying it explains the violence that we see in a city like philadelphia that's kind of common across most urban cities ruled by democrats um and that all i mean it's pretty amazing how actually the landscape of philadelphia and the responses you're seeing to the gun violence to mayor kenny to krasner how actually has everything to do with the breakdown of the Democratic Party, the complete breakdown of governance, the complete breakdown of any sort semblance of a social contract that the people feel they have with the state. Um, and I, I feel like all these comments that people are leaving on the live stream show how much the question of democracy globally, domestically, even in a city like Philadelphia has to do with the plight of the people today. I, I think, um... 
I think just one of the comments was from Michelle, who was saying that the preschool is siding with the uh, anti-democratic yeah. forces uh, in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, well, well, that would be, and I'm glad she raised that because that puts us in debate with the forces that we are opposed to because her position is the position of the ruling elite, that they represent democracy. And what we are saying is they don't represent democracy, that uh, they are, well, you know, we've said it before, uh, uh, that in, in many ways, the people of the United States see their, their governance and their rule as illegitimate. I think when you, when you listen to the data that uh, Jahan pointed out, I would say to Michelle, without going into a lot of things, uh, how would she address this, da this data that the American people say their own democracy, the democracy that supposedly defines our country and makes it possible for us to rule or govern, the people to rule or govern. Well, the people are saying that's not the case. Over two thirds of them saying it has to be changed. So I, I would say to Michelle, are you, I mean, your argument with us is not really an argument with us. It's an argument with the majority of people. And we, the preschools seem to be closer to the majority of people than the ruling elite do. Mm -hmm. Oh, your mom, oh, tell us if they. So I, I don't know what I, unless somebody, oh, go, go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, this, this conversation kind of makes me think back to what you were saying earlier in the day about um, like the long game of the long year um, um, what, what is the end goal of the idea of democracy? <laughs> Is it that we're in the streets or afraid to go outside because our neighbors are shooting each other? Um, can we expect to go around the world and plan on uh, bombing as many people as humanly possible? I mean, this seems completely contrary to the, the, the idea of it inherently. Um, you know, it seems like the idea is so much more wrapped up in this culture of possession over other people. Um, I don't know, I was thinking about how uh, like Nancy Pelosi was, was making the argument of why it's okay for her to be trading in stocks oh, yeah. huh. and be you know, in, in a legal position to determine where stocks are going to go. Yeah. Um, and she's it's a free market, you know, we're, we're, we're allowed to participate in a free market. Um, I mean, I can't participate in that free market. I don't have that position. Um, but I, I, you know, I, and, and just thinking about these other countries has been brought up, you know, Japan and South Korea. I mean, the United States wrote the Japanese constitution, right? So how is that a democracy? How can we even begin to not even, how is that not widely known? You know, that's, uh, it's a democracy if the United States decides it is, that's what that term means. It, it seems very, um, seems very antithetical to the idea. Of, of a peaceful transition of power. It's one thing they like to say. Well, you know, we think about the history of this country, uh, you know, the, this, this, this government had planned on dropping 200 atomic bombs on 66 cities in Asia, you know, to, to uh, subvert them from ever having the ability to defend themselves, right? So that, 
I mean, what is the end goal of these ideas, really? Um, are we talking about peace? And if we're not, what are, what are people really talking about then? That's definitely lost in the conversation when we're you know, trying to discuss these very, very minor issues in governance. Um, you know, uh, the bigger picture we need to hold on to. But isn't that the fundamental question? Can the ruling class rule? Are they legitimate governors of the country? And uh, this is what uh, Emily just raised. I mean, it is not democracy is just the cover for something more nefarious. They're not defending them. They claim that they are defending democracy, but really what they're defending is their rule. And what the people are saying, that's what these data, data that uh, Johan reads out tells us. The people are saying, you are not legitimate governors, rulers of the country. There is no social contract between you who are rich and powerful and cynical and degenerate, decadent, and we the people who are suffering. That's why I talked about those three things, inflation, COVID, and violence, and how these things affect the ordinary person in a way that they don't affect Krasner, in a way that they don't affect Pelosi, or any of the rest of these people. Uh, any solutions they talk about in you know, defunding the police, you could only have that idea if you lived in a bubble. That's really where that idea comes from. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, like AOC talking about defunding the police, right, but when right. people are serving the Capitol, you got the Capitol. Right. 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 Putting them to death essentially mm -hmm. for the right we say is universal. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, I was watching an interview with the president, I think, of uh, Azerbaijan. Or yeah, and I don't really know much about him, but he was being very much interrogated <laughs> by a BBC journalist saying, I hear you don't have freedom of speech in your country. Like, well, what about Julian Assange? <laughs> <laughs> As he tries to walk away from you, yeah. yeah. he's like, No, I'm asking you about <laughs> Julian Assange. <laughs> right. So it's getting harder and harder to keep this, uh, this veneer from being exposed. I think even with um, with January sixth, I think like obviously you can view it as people not accepting a legitimate election. Like that is how I think that's like the mainstream view that's being pushed as what January sixth was a threat of. But I mean, you already pointed this out, but even if you take that at its face value, then what about Russiagate? Yeah. You know, I think Russiagate has to be viewed first and foremost as the attempt to overturn a legitimate election. And I think for the people who either showed up at January 6th or don't see this whole, basically the start of a cold or like a war on terror domestically as a right, as a good thing, um, I think it's not so much about the like legitimacy of the election, although that's part of it, but also I think 
I think the view of the Trump movement is that they saw Biden as the restoration of a regime, basically. Like the rest, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think basically we have to be able to see things from different perspectives. Um, and also the other thing too is that um, I think there should be a lot more concern about like the extent to which the deep state or the national security state was involved in January 6th as well. Because if people remember right before the election, there was this supposed plot of like um, Trump of Trumpers to like kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the Michigan oh, yeah. governor. But it, it turned out that of the people who they were suspected of like plotting this, like the majority of them were FBI agents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, the, you know, the, the Gretchen Whitmer plot was seen as the prelude to January 6th. And so, I mean, that's also what Jahan's putting out, like, like people in like the, the far right who are like uncovering a lot of this. But yeah, yeah. yeah they're attempting to basically quell that story. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Even with, um, I mean, like, with I was reading a little bit about Bannon, um, like the case he has, the court case. I think he got held in contempt, and then they're going to court. But his, he's part of the reason he's going to court. He said he, his lawyer is requesting all the documents. That they're using in the secret hearing, which they held them in contempt for not showing up, but they don't want to release in public right. about what happened, the information they have about who among the January 6th people were uh, provocateurs working for the FBI or other elements of national security state. Um, so, I mean, you know, if it's all about democracy, they should reveal all this information. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be secret. You should say, oh, what information do you have? What happened? Instead, they're trying to keep it. Uh, secret, but then leak out certain things and try to shape a media narrative um, so that you get you don't know exactly what happened. But but because the media is working so closely with them, I mean that's that they're able to distort things. But I agree with you that I think that they can do as much as they want right now because what as much as they do probably when they lose the House and maybe the Senate, the Republicans will probably take revenge. <laughs> Call up all kinds of people. Hunter Biden might be testifying. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 If I could just say, you know, um, you know, this is all unlike anything else, I think, in the history of the country. Mm -hmm. And for your generation, I would say for my generation, no one has seen this. And um, it was always assumed that the American state would was strong, uh, especially after World War II. It could not implode. There would never be a domestic challenge to it. If there were, it would come from the quote, as they say, racial minorities, meaning black people. So you could have COINTELPRO and all of that and assassination of leaders. But you know, like they say, generals are always fighting the last war. Mm -hmm. So they were not prepared for a white uprising mm -hmm. of this type. And you know, going forward, one cannot rule out that every kind of provocation from the deep state to turn this from a really what is a class and ideological assault upon the state and try to make it a racial thing. So they will have um, 
provocateurs mm -hmm. kill mm -hmm. black people mm -hmm. or black provocateurs kill white people mm -hmm. when that's not the essence of this at all mm -hmm. it's not the essence in fact you know the boogaloo boys who mm -hmm. are very interested <laughs> <laughs> a white organization called the boogaloo boys <laughs> you know uh, who disavow white supremacy yeah. mm -hmm. and the other what's the other one uh, uh, proud uh, boy. The proud boy. The head of it is the Afro-Cuban guy. Who <laughs> was gay? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody at the uh, top is gay, you know. But they said, no, we're from, we're not racist. We're just white civilization. But whatever they are, right. it reflects something deep right. and a deep split from the state. This is what is all new. Yeah. This is what is all new. And, 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 you know, interesting, that's what I find, find about the Proud Boys. I don't think the, quote, left can claim that they represent all non-binary, mm -hmm. that the LGBT, the LGBTQs on all sides, you know? And uh, all the LGBTQs ain't down with Biden. You got a lot of LGBTQs. LGBTQs that are down with the other side. Mm. So, I mean, let the LGBTQs speak for the damn self. <laughs> so they're trying to appropriate everybody. All the Black people is down with, no, we're not. Mm. You know, I mean, so this idea that just because you got Al Sharpton on television, that that means that he speaks for all of us. He don't speak for none of us. <laughs> I mean, he, if well, let me shut my mouth. The, the guy that spoke for most Black people in this period was Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. He was the most popular voice of the grassroots of Black people. Not a, They did everything they could to discredit him. But that was, he was the most popular voice. But that, that's all. Doc, I just want to echo what you were saying about the sense of betrayal from the Democratic yes. Party. We've been saying. Um, uh, across the board with the, the working class, but also like more bourgeois elements, um, especially young people, there's a great sense of you have not delivered on the promises that you made um, it, with student loans, but other things as well, um, that they see the in, incapability of Biden and the Democrats to deliver on any kind of promise. And I think that's a great opportunity. How, how is that affecting, how do you, in your experience, what is the, the, the sentiment about the society and about struggle among young people? That sense of betrayal from the Democratic Party? I don't have a sense of where it's going. Really. Yeah. I don't have a sense of what people are turning to uh, in lieu of that. Well, you know, on the student loan thing, uh, like Biden, Biden said that they weren't, he's not going to uh, include anything about canceling student debt. I think it may be in the, uh, the bill you're talking about. But also, it turned out that because he was a senator from Delaware, where a lot of banks are registered, he had previously <laughs> written the bill that, that allowed all the student debt to happen, made it impossible to cancel it, or, you know, uh, what do you call a default on it or any of that stuff. <laughs> so, you know. People should have looked into them, you know. But also, I think the problem is that um, with a, a lot of this demographic, like the more, I don't know, like college educated young people, the problem is that 
while a lot of people get disappointed in Biden or previously have been disappointed in Hillary Clinton or Obama, the role of people like Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. and AOC is to kind of whip them up and be like, okay, it didn't work this time, but next time elect us in larger numbers, we'll have the numbers, progressive caucus will be bigger, you know, we'll yeah. keep on the fact, <laughs> you want the fascists to come, you know? yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, that's how Which Bernie is interesting because he's jumping, I think he's trying to jump on the Du Bois train. He's yeah. doing no, a yeah, he's what? doing a reconstruction event. What the hell? With Eric Boner? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, there is a thing of a kind of, they're trying to use black reconstruction, but Eric Boner's black reconstruction. <laughs> but it's not black because yeah, it's yeah, called yeah, reconstruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like they said, let's conveniently yeah. get rid of yeah, black yeah, and yeah. black people. Well, well, yeah, even the image we showed. Who's doing the reconstructing? Well, that fits Bernie Sanders well because, you know, the only socialism that he really likes. Is of the white nations, yes. Norway, Sweden, you know, Luxembourg, any place. I love that social. But when you ask them about Venezuela, well, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez is a dead yeah. communist dictator. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they are trying to. I mean, it's this thing of trying to use this imagery in a superficial way like okay reconstruction okay poor people's campaign yeah okay oh. what else can you resonate <laughs> but without any substance you know and give it give it to people in the um elite to kind of manipulate and these intellectuals uh i just ask a question i mean this is i hadn't heard about the bernie sanders eric Foner. <laughs> now where's this going to happen online Oh, definitely. As part of the democratic socialist program, they're we're reading Black Reconstruction together. I think it's Black like, Reconstruction. Yeah. 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 They're fucking it up. I think it's really just make a reconstruction. Oh, really? Yeah. So the three years behind the year before. I feel like the. Well, who knows how they're reading it, but it, I feel like it kind That's of falls awesome. in line with like, uh, they're probably going to push it as like the follow up to 1619. Probably, yeah. yeah. Oh. I, 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 saw, I didn't see DSA, but I saw that People's Forum in New York. Remember, I, I was asking you about uh, some of that stuff, but, um, but uh, they, they did something past summer, like political education summer. And so then they had a site, they had a section on like, I think it was race or maybe working class history. And it was like, you know, okay, Black Reconstruction, but they just had like, read chapter one, and then read propaganda, read the last chapter. And then and they, had, they brought in people like, that's what I was asking about, that got James Early and Robin Kelly and these people to mm -hmm. explain a little bit, oh, okay, this is what it is. You know, and this helps explain Trump, you know, the white the white workers who elected Trump, they're like the restorationists, the believers, mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, anyway, so yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, 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 I mean, it's like the people who tried to like end reconstruction. Yeah, redeem, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that but but that's when when it's in the hands of these people. This these I mean that's the role of the academics and the ruling class intellectuals, especially the so-called progressive trying to incubate new oh movements. <laughs> they're they're um, in, when you leave it to, in their hands. I mean, this is what they do with with, with black reconstruction oh, or with goodness. poor people's movement or with. Mm -hmm what have you, you know.
Baldwin. I'm with Baldwin for that matter. Good God Almighty. Well, <laughs> let me just say, I mean, this is, whew. I mean, you think you made one step forward, <laughs> and here comes the BS. And when they come, it's like loads of it. I mean, wait a minute. So, <laughs> I know you mentioned this to me, <laughs> but I, I can't keep up with everything you mentioned, John. Yeah. See, this this is this is what we're all. This is the uh, complexity of the ideological struggle, mm -hmm. and why so many people prefer empty activism mm -hmm. to grounded, uh, purposeful action. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, anybody could jump up. Oh, I'm marching for Black Lives Matter. So who told you about it? I heard about it on CNN. Okay, right. So now, but this is, um, excuse my joke, but anyone who dis disparages the struggle of ideas yeah. is not as pessimistic about the possibility of a future. Mm -hmm. Anybody, I don't care who he is or she is. Anyone who disparages the ideological struggle, who thinks hyperbolic language, like my friend Cornell, I'll talk about. He's in the reception area. Eric Foner, Bernie Sanders, Eric Foner, Kianga, Yamada Taylor, and <laughs> My kid's tomorrow, if anyone wants to check it out tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you You know, I, tell, I, I do try to take a day off now. <laughs> but these people don't give me the opportunity to relax. <laughs> you know, um, it is because of Du Bois's comprehensive ideological intervention mm -hmm. that he was shut down. It's not because of uh, his political activism, but because of the power of his ideas, the shifting of a paradigm, a way of understanding the whole history and system. And, and so now these revisionists and perpetrators uh, who never mentioned Black Reconstruction, including Eric Foner. One mention of Du Bois in the preface of three or four pages. Oh yes, and I'd like to thank Du Bois for his work in the past. Now let's move it on. I, I met him when I was a kid. Once. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and if he saw me today, he would spit on me. But, <laughs> <laughs> Eric Foner's reconstruction is a polemic against Black reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It is not just a different take, it's polemic against Black reconstruction. Yeah. That is why, don't go nowhere, Sophie, the conference, the conference on Winston that you all, you know, was so very, very important. And we'll come back. I just wanted to say that yeah, before you. Yeah, yeah. Because there is a principled engagement with Du Bois and an unprincipled one. Cornell is not principled on Du Bois, believe me. 
my heart, I love him. But he has never been able to find a principled engagement with Du Bois. You know, he's always going somewhere else. William James, John Dewey, you know, when it comes to pedagogy, somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then he'll start naming names, Ella Baker, uh, Harriet Tubman, so and so, and Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Du Bois is in a mix, mm -hmm. but always trivialized. Du Bois is huge, world historic. You know what I'm saying? His thinking provides a way to understand the crisis of our time. They're not going to deal with it that way. And that's what is so infuriating about this whole thing. You know, it's it. I, you know, I love to to debate or to talk with a principled opponent. Let us disagree, but an unprincipled. You can't do anything with an unprincipled person. You know, you know. I'm, I'm today. I'm talking a lot about dating and all. Try to date an unprincipled person. You end up going to jail for murder or manslaughter. I mean, you cannot deal with an unprincipled person because an unprincipled, let me just say, being unprincipled is a form of bad faith. Bad faith is a form of lying, you know, with, but it's a, a lie where you can hedge and say, well, I really wasn't lying. I was just, uh, well, you know, that, you know, that type of thing. So this is what we're dealing with. Eric Foner has nothing to say when it comes to Du Bois. Just talk about your book, what you did, but leave Du Bois out of it. But they, isn't this interesting? Now they have to reference Du Bois. Right, right, right. You all who did not want to mention, I'm sorry, Eric, not in his book. Look in, look in the index. And you look for the name W.E.B. Du Bois one time in a brief preface. Mm. Once. So he doesn't take Black Reconstruction seriously. And of course, what, what is the Indian scholar's name from Columbia? Spivak. <laughs> she, uh, a few years ago, I guess she gave up on it. She was, you remember up in Cornell? Oh yeah, Cornell, she showed up there. And she was going to, she was challenging Du Bois's notion of the general strike. You know, that how could Du Bois claim a general strike? Uh, and he never read Rosa Luxemburg. I'm saying, well, shit, she wasn't allowed. <laughs> but I mean, it's always some kind of nickel and dime espionage. Oh, well, Rosa Luxemburg, and because she was from Europe, and uh, of course, you know, she knows, and Du Bois is from the ghetto. So, how could he know what a general strike? What happened to Rosa Luxemburg? General strike, how did that go? Well, it never came on. Yeah, it never happened. Uh, but this is, this is hard. This is, this, is, this, this is really hurtful to me. Du Bois is not to be trivialized or kicked around. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's. But now, I mean, this thing with Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's, oh. it's interesting to connect the dots with what we're saying today. I mean, uh, go ahead. I mean, basically, no, basically ahead, just Joe, you do it this, thing, this thing of the uh, progressive, the fake progressive, 
basically are going to use it. I mean, it seems to me, we'll see when they do the session, yeah. but yeah. It, the whole thing is going to be about, okay, save, save this democracy, i.e. Biden, from the threats to democracy, i.e. Right. Trump movement. That's right. Or, okay, supposedly the Confederate, neo-Confederate, and so on. I know how they <laughs> It's going to be, quote, abolition democracy. Right, right, right. And, right. Um, yeah. Right. But it will be just the name of Du Bois, right. but not the substance right. of Du Bois. Right. Right. And you did a whole year at 1199 right. reading Black Reconstruction. Right. Right. And uh, right. yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I mean, it, it is terrible the way that they're utilizing it. But I mean, it also shows the desperation that now they're yes. trying to to use it to save themselves, you know. You're right, Joe. You're right, Joe. I mean, they have to, they don't have much. Mm -hmm. That's what's becoming ideologically, they don't have much. Mm -hmm. And and this is where I think, you know, everybody tries to say, uh, you know, the free school is not a huge organization, but it's an influential organization. Mm -hmm. What gives the free school? some kind of standing in this city and maybe beyond the ideas and we never backed up we stood we stuck to our guns and we kept working on things trying to understand you know and bringing in more people to to enter into the discussion and hold it. And this is the point of the conferences. The conferences are more than the free school. You know, because then they allow for greater discussion, other angles, other people. You, you know what I'm saying? And it's uh, be it on 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 China, on Baldwin, on Henry Winston. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, it's um, it, it's it's ideas. And if you don't believe in ideas, you don't believe in the future. You don't believe in the future. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of you know how uh, um, this narrative exists today more and more about what democracy is. I mean, I was listening to you know what you were reading out, and there's this idea that you know, okay, um, so democracy is something that not all people really want. That all all people might not want democracy, and. And when Dubai is, um, you know, he, he defines democracy as the broadest measure of justice to be given to the greatest number of people. And it seems to me that, you Could know. Could you repeat that once yeah. again, please? Because that might inform our approach to this uh, Bernie Sanders thing. Right, right. So, I mean, in his essay um, uh, on the ruling of men in the book Dark Water, he defines democracy as the method that is, I mean, the, I mean it's the method to, to render the broadest justice to the greatest number of people. He cho I think he chooses these words, you know, it's, I think it's deep how he chooses the words. And, you know, it seems that um, today, somehow the idea has turned on its head, where we <laughs> seem to think that, you know, democracy is something that is preferred only by a few people. And it seems that you only can be in the ruling class if, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean to say that, you know, um, only by being in the ruling class can you ever not want democracy because I mean that's when you know your relation to to democracy and justice and power it's a I mean it's, it's a different relationship when you're in the ruling class or it's a mass of people mm -hmm. and 
I think I was thinking of, you know, it goes back to uh, this article that we had discussed in preschool last year, the Times article, which came out after Biden's election regarding this, I mean, the bipartisan campaign to remove Trump. And, you know, their language was the same. It was, about, yeah, it was about, you know, fortifying democracy. Now, you know, it seems to depend on which, on, on you know, how, how you relate to people. That's how you can define, you know, what fortifying democracy is and what the dictatorship is. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if I might just add, you know, it's almost without saying it, mm -hmm. uh, if you read, uh, by the way, the, the, the New York Times op-ed, uh, what's his name, Edsel, William Edsel, yeah, uh, if you read that, it's almost as though they're saying, in order to save democracy, we must destroy it. Mm -hmm. In order to save it, we must destroy it in substance, in essence. What do you mean by that? Yes, thank you. This is very important, Jay. You know, it's, it's an irony produced by an ironic situation. Mm -hmm. The ruling class who claim to be the defenders of democracy are literally, when you read these articles and these academic studies and these proposals are saying in order to save democracy, it has to be destroyed. The substance of it must be destroyed. Put another way, in order to preserve the rule of the existing ruling elite, mm -hmm. we have to destroy democracy for the majority. That's the kind of desperate situation we're in. Mm -hmm. I know in India, I would I would be interested if you shared this with Porter Bud. I know she'll share it with her parents and other people, what their response would be. Because India, you all don't know this kind of crisis of rule that in order to quote, save democracy, they must destroy it, which flips on its head, the whole argument that the Trump movement represents autocracy and fascism, and we, the liberals, mm -hmm. represent the democratic urging, the democratic spirit. Mm -hmm. But since we have, quote, the moral high ground, and there's always a moral, uh, implication, or how would I say, a moral gesturing, a gesture towards morality and higher aims. It just, it pisses me off just to, just to have to say these things. These scumbags claiming morality on their side. So because we have the moral high ground, we will destroy democracy in order to save it as an abstract idea. And believe me, that's on their agenda. That's the meaning of Julian Assange. In order to save freedom of speech, we're gonna destroy it and anybody that will stand up. And let me tell you, they did Du Bois and Robeson and Winston and all of them dirty, but 
what they're doing to Assange, and they know they're killing this man. He had a, a, a minor stroke, by the way. I don't know whether you heard. And they know they're doing it. And it's the British and American intelligence, the so-called uh, foundation, countries that founded uh, liberal Anglo-Saxon democracy. So, you know, we have so many indications. And it's not an, I don't like Modi, I think he's, you know, not doing good job or whatever mm -hmm. bullshit. But <laughs> India is not facing this. I actually think I mean the I mean, you know the forces of, of of you know this liberal force which is trying to shape you know this this idea of of you know this weird kind of perverted idea of of democracy. I mean I I think India is quite safe from it because the liberal class I mean they choose to come here and stay here. Then they don't have any um, relation to the masses of people in India or anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have, at least you know, in the near future, I don't think they have much um, scope for you know in, in, influencing Indian politics mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah, you guys are lucky. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, see that. See, there are consequences still in India for betrayal. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? There is still. Something going, at least I sense when I talk to you all and, and Nandathan Raju, that there is still a, a belief that the people can rule. You know what I'm saying? Even by the elites, even by the Modi party and all of them, you know? But here, this ruling class is completely desperate, completely without principle, and frankly, without boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's the danger. And the, the threat, this is beyond fascism. Stop using, they need to stop using. This is something completely different. Because even when, when Hitler came to power or was appointed by Hindenburg, yeah, German society remained intact. The German state was intact. We faced a whole different, the implosion and th these pressures of inflation, we talked about that, what inflation does if it is prolonged, mm -hmm. and then the rise of violence in the mm -hmm. cities, the likes of which we've never seen, and then the COVID pandemic. I mean, mm -hmm. you it's an ex it's, ex it's existential. Mm -hmm. It's existential. And we have to get ourselves ready for whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, in my mind, I see what you're saying in terms of the destruction of democracy in the name of saving democracy. Yes. It kind of, and the justification of, okay, well, they're authoritarian, like the projection, so to speak. Um, could you talk about how, uh, like, Build Back Better, for example, is, a, is, a, is part of this destruction of democracy in the name of saving democracy? Well, see, here, here, I think, if I might say, because we almost have to do a timeline of, you know, the overthrow of Trump, which was a united ruling class project. It wasn't like one side of the ruling class with Trump, the other side ain't with Trump. No, 90% of the ruling class, the deep state, the billionaires, Wall Street, was, were against, we gotta get this guy out in the name of democracy. Mm -hmm. 
to save democracy, which again is to save the rule of the ruling elite. But now it's, you know, things speed up sometimes in history, the velocity of events. So we're going from January 20th, maybe you want to say November 2020, but let's say January 20 when Biden becomes president to now, a little less than a year. Things have moved very rapidly and the, I'm calling it collapse, the implosion, put another way, the contradictions have only sharpened. And not just between the people and the ruling elite, but within the ruling elite. You know, we talked about within the Democratic Party, these splits, these factions who, who can't find common ground. They'll destroy Kamala Harris, and they are destroying. That's what her disappearance, you know. But then they have no way to address or understand how to rule in a crisis like this. They're totally unprepared. So I think um, their options are very few. So they have to destroy the essence or substance of democracy, as limited as that was under bourgeois rule. The great, the great democratic movement of our times was the civil rights movement, which was the spirit of expanded democracy. That's what King was. It wasn't this bullshit that they but it was the that's what Muhammad Ali represented. You understand? But now a counter-revolution, even more lethal than the counter-revolution against reconstruction. You, you know, that Du Bois wrote about. So these this ruling class, in order to save itself, will destroy democracy. And that's what I mean by to save itself. Come on, sorry. No, no, no. And so you see the um, I guess that the, the continuing manifest like in base the ruling class being unable to take care of uh its citizens today oh, no, that's, the citizens don't even count yeah. they don't jake we cannot i don't think any of us can understand a ruthless group of people who only care about their own power their own wealth their own selves mm -hmm. that's all we don't count mm -hmm. I mean, I think the sooner we get that other night, we don't count. Mm -hmm. Our fate is in our hands now. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we swim in the same waters with the masses, we're more safe than if we don't. Mm -hmm. We do better. And I say this, anybody listening, you can take it like you want. We do better in the in in that mass that those waters that the trump masses swim in because ultimately that's going to be not just trump voters but it's going to be all the people because our fates are increasingly the same our conditions are increased so wherever the people are that's where i want to swim i don't want to separate myself from any of the 
castles. And I'm not going to attack ordinary people in order to protect the elite. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Blaze. I don't need to talk. Well, to you. Finish, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. And just thinking about the question that you posed earlier, how do we understand that betrayal that young people, especially college educated, feel from the Biden administration? Um, I, th I think one thing they haven't done yet is to connect that betrayal that they've experienced to the Biden administration and the ruling class's betrayal of the working class. Yeah, that's right. Not yet. Not yet. And not that it's impossible, but they haven't yet made that connection. Yeah. And, and you know, in some ways, young college educated people might be the last ones <laughs> to understand that. You know what I'm saying? They're closest to the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they have a little bit of quote freedom to not, you know, to party hardy and not, you know, to do what they do. But young people with children with families uh, and then the working class the more stable experienced older working people they feel this in a way that i don't think a lot of young college students do not right now they haven't yet looked at the rural pennsylvania county no. that voted for trump and say that is the same ruling class betrayal that i have that's right it's not that it, we can't get there yeah, that's right. I think they'll get there, but um, they're not they're not there yet. Yeah. They're not where the masses of working people are. That anger. And that's how that's how they keep the students. That's how Joe Biden keeps the students with the student loan forgiveness yeah. idea. Yeah. That's how he done took that off the table. That's that's off the table till 2024. We'll revisit that in 2024 or maybe 2026 if I'm still around. Well, also, I think it's an important point you're saying that uh the U.S. Uh, definitely more than uh, these Asian nations, and certainly maybe even more than the other Western nations, is in a situation where the government is is basically at war with the citizens, yeah. waging war on them. And the American government has literally said that, right, yeah. right, 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 that we're at war with anybody that goes against this right. uh, Biden right. administration, right. ruling class. Right, right. right. They said that. I mean, right. it's not. They said it. Right. I mean, does anybody doubt it? They said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what does it mean when the government said we're at war with seventy-four million of the citizens of this country? Right. We're at war with y'all, and y'all are threat more than uh, uh, Islamic terrorism. This is white supremacist terrorism, and we're gonna bring you down with the quickness. <laughs> it actually also it is we're deep we're deep doo doo as they say in the street. Excuse me. No, it also explains why people say it over and over, even with gun violence in Philadelphia. Yeah. People are like, why is it that when Rolexes are stolen in Center City, the police can find the people who did it in three days? But when black people die every day, like the police, the city, everyone wants actually will let it happen for as long as it takes to annihilate a whole population of people. Because the government, the state is at war with its people. And but it was that's why it was actually interesting to see the chair of the Republican National Party or Philadelphia Republican National Party, yeah, wrote like an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I thought that was interesting because I think people's eyes are on Philadelphia and also Pennsylvania, obviously. On Philly as an example of a city controlled by Democrats heavily, mm -hmm. but at such war with its own people. 
Tennessee in the intense civil war. Um, but she like, actually she made an interesting point like around democracy where it's even if you just take democracy at, at its narrow Western terms, she says, why is it that people, the Democrats, the Democrats who are elected to government feel no sense of accountability to the people qualitatively, have no sense of the qualitative um, like issues that you described, like that 31-year-old pregnant woman who was killed. Nothing is done about it. Personal won't be found. But she said she was like, isn't it interesting that Mayor Kenny like will blame everyone except for himself and it's his own party for the issues caused. And she even listed, she was like, it's at this point you can't accept over 2021 Mayor Kenny saying that the pandemic caused gun violence, that the courts have caused gun violence, or that the state legislature not giving the city enough money caused gun violence. At what point do you have to say, like as an elected official, that you're accountable to the people, that the government is accountable, even in the narrowest sense of the definition of democracy? Like there has to be a sense of accountability. Like even if you say democracy is elections, you have to say like you're accountable to the people who elected you. And so that was it was interesting just looking into the future of politics, like the forces that play. I think, like I don't know, it's just interesting that even the Repub the chair of the Republic National Republican Committee is like speaking like this to the people of Philadelphia in an op-ed, like pretty publicly. I'm to, no, she's Ronald McDaniel is the national Republican chair, and she's like she's a huge Trump like to this day. It's pretty well. Um, I mean, yeah. Also, I mean, uh, uh, this thing of democracy. Uh, I mean, the justification, democracy and fascism, justify will destroy the democracy to save the democracy from fascism. Right. <laughs> And and you know uh, also because now I'm kind of exposed to how uh, uh, democracy idea theories of democracy are taught in the in higher education. I'm, I'm very up close experience <laughs> with that nowadays. But uh, one of the things is uh, even when it comes to teaching the history of fascism, right? Which a lot of which is being invoked now. I think it's a crucial point which you said that Hitler didn't take power. He was appointed to power oh, yeah. by yeah. the German elite. No, nope, people don't know that. <laughs> Let's stop. No, fascists don't. It's not like they get a mass base and take power. That's popular power. Mm -hmm. They're appointed by an elite to crush mass movements. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the German elite, uh, I mean, Hitler didn't, didn't win any elections. The German elite to stop the rise of uh, the Communist Party, other popular forces in Germany, uh, they appointed Hitler to power. Similarly, in Italy, this, this one is actually being invoked more uh, with the insurrect, so called January 6th. Like, oh, it's Trump's march on Washington. They invoked that uh, Mussolini had a march on Rome. But in, there was no march on Rome. The march on Rome was when uh, Mussolini threatened to march on Rome. The Italian king appointed Mussolini the prime minister of Italy. And then he marched to Rome, quote unquote, on a train. Just bought a train ticket <laughs> and took a train to Rome and became prime minister. <laughs> That's not how fascists come to power. It's the same thing now. Like, oh, OK. To stop this mass movement now, you, you'll basically, in effect, appoint a Biden type person. You might appoint someone even more ruthless, but it's all it's all being manipulated from the top. And you, you have other examples in history. It's interesting also, a lot of this stuff happened in the third world, which is now happening here. These so-called fake revolutions, like for example, in Iran, the 
the Shah of Iran when there's a lot of popular discontent. He's like, oh, I'm implementing the white revolution to avoid a red revolution or a green revolution, a white revolution from above, modernization from above. You get everything you want. It's like, but so I keep why, why did he even have to go there <laughs> right. with the white revolution? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's the same type of thing. Oh, okay. The, the elite under the guise of the Democratic Party are going to implement, are going to go do Bernie Sanders' political revolution. Going to bring you democratic socialism from above. As long as they they keep power, you don't try to take power. Um, so anyway, we have precedent for this, and a lot of this is based on the manipulation of history. And uh, I mean, again, that's the role of the intellectual. That's the problem with the college-educated um, class in the society. Also, it's interesting that you have. I mean, because people try to try to say, okay, the Trump movement. Oh, it's not a totally working-class movement. You have people who maybe have higher median incomes, but it's interesting how college education is a divide. Because even if you're like you're saying you, you're maybe a, a you have a higher median income, you're a small businessman, but you're not college educated. You're culturally in, in a lot of ways closer to the working class than a college educated person that might be like I don't know working as a librarian or or has a job where they may be making less money, but culturally they're closer uh, to this whole professional managerial class conception. So uh, so yeah, I mean that's why it's wrong to say that the elite that there's a part of the elite that's with trump it's not necessarily there's some people who have money who are interesting and now a lot of people making money with crypto also that are with trump and trying to help trying to help them set up an alternative social media network yeah, and all that yeah, type of stuff yeah. uh but they're not part of the elite per se um culture education is an important marker of being connected to the elite the, the one um, business person that they're trying to attack for being pro-Trump is the My Pillow guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's the biggest guy they got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should ban the My Pillow guy from selling his pillows. Or that remember that uh, Four Seasons? They're like, oh, Giuliani's going to do a press conference for the Four Seasons. It's not the hotel. It's a landscaping company. <laughs> 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 Y'all want to move on to Larry Krasner, Absolutely. which is very much related to this. As you know, um, two weeks ago now, Larry Krasner held a press conference um, where he was. Uh, I know. Yes. Yeah. God bless you too. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, Larry Krasner two weeks ago held a press conference and in his cool, detached way proclaimed as he is welcoming uh, visitors to Philadelphia, you know, you know pumping up the tour, tourist business. I react to that really strongly because you talk, you're welcoming tourists to Philadelphia and you haven't addressed the citizens. Okay, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. That's that's and that's the contradiction. And you know, Larry Krasner, in his cool, detached way, proclaimed, "There is no problem of crime in the city. We're safe here, uh, and everything is cool." So all y'all from different parts of the country want to visit Independence Hall and all that. Come on down. We got your back. Right. And people went off, said, what? Mm -hmm. The murder rate is at a record high and shows no signs of abating. And so in the wake of that, 
former Mayor Nutter writes an op-ed and among other things, says that Larry Krasner should, should apologize to the families of the 500 and at that time 23 uh, people who had been murdered in the city of Philadelphia. And went on to say that, he, that his statement was a racist statement. Mm -hmm. He didn't say it in the harshest language like I'm gonna say it in a minute. Uh, and then, you know, this mass outcry occurs. And so a week after he makes the initial statement, he comes out on television and press conference to apologize. And now the cool detached Larry Krasner then broke down crying. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. I feel you, money, you know. Um, Break down, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt nobody's feelings. And yada, yada, yeah. So, but already, as I told you, the great political discontent in the city is at an all time high, especially among black people who express this in their own ways. I, they really do. Uh, and they are. It's a withdrawal, it's, and you know, it's in, in churches and communities around kitchen table with people are cursing and saying other things. What the heck is he talking about? And what he was saying in effect was this. Nothing has changed in the city. Black people just killing black people. Ain't no problem with that. We got that. Or to put it another way in a more, the way graphic, the way black people when we talk. It's nothing but the N-words killing other N-words. We don't have anything to worry about. Now, Larry Krasner, when he first ran four years ago, was nowhere near winning the election. What got him over the top one was an infusion of $1.5 million for one of the uh, foundations connected to the Sor to Soros Foundation. But then a shift of black politicians and the black vote towards Larry Krasner. In other words, Larry Krasner won because of the black vote and only because of the black vote. He is reelected this last time in November only because of the black vote. Now, Larry Krasner situated himself, uh, by the way, a very small turnout in both uh, primaries, but Larry Krasner situates and defines himself as reforming the criminal justice system and the practices of the DA's office. Very good. Larry Krasner has uh, overturned convictions of people that were serving prison terms who shouldn't have been in jail. The DA's office under Lynn Abrahams, and she had been a long time DA connected to the most reactionary forces of the police and the courts and others. And uh, the New York Times had defined her in the late 90s, 1990s as the most deadly DA 
in the country. In other words, she had called for and gotten uh, death penalty uh, convictions and the death penalty for more people than any DA in the country. Um, and then Seth Williams, who followed her, who was black, but you know, was nothing but a bootlicker, and then was, you know, arrested for stealing. And he did, he did, a, he did a bit in prison himself, you know. <laughs> now he's very religious and all that. But, you know. but uh, so this reform-mindedness is a, uh, a, a, a breath of fresh air, you know. He's not going after people because of their race, because of their zip code, and he's trying to have a more fair thing. Now, his office is not staffed by experienced prosecutors. So if you get held up and it don't make the newspaper, you'd be waiting for the next 15 years to have some resolution of it. But <laughs> Jerry is a case of that. <laughs> he's still waiting. <laughs> But um, but the city of Philadelphia, we're experiencing, and it is ex understood this way, as a literal bloodbath in the black community. I sit on a um, well, I guess it's defunct now, but some sort of commission to inform the DAs, the DA about how to deal, well, it was really Black Lives Matter, police violence and all that, but then it quickly turned into how we gonna deal with all of these murders in the black community. But then it was disbanded right before the election, we ain't been called back together again. I guess, I don't know how I go back on that committee, but anyway, <laughs> but, but then, as the furor heats up, then Larry, uh, then allies of Larry Krasner, especially a good friend of mine, politically we're not on the same page, no kind of way, former Black Panther uh, named Paula Peoples writes an op-ed. And um, it seemed like to be a committee that wrote it. And it seemed to be a, a PR piece coming out of the DA's office. Larry Krasner is the people's DA. Larry Krasner has let people out of jail who were unjustly in, incarcerated. Mass incarceration undermined the economic well-being of the Black community. All of that is true. Only problem, she didn't connect it to the crime bill of 1994, the Clinton administration and Biden. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, all of that is true. But it's begging the question. The question is, you did good, but that doing that good does not uh, nullify the fact that you don't give two dams about the safety of Black Philadelphia, mm -hmm. which is also a statement on the governing or ruling class in the city of Philadelphia. The mayor don't care and ain't doing nothing. The city council, they sitting around, I don't know what they're doing, but ain't no big problem for them. But at the level of the people, it is a problem. 
People call their city council person. We got a we got a drug house and a gun house right down the corner here. Could you? Well, uh, what I would suggest is that you all uh, try to form a committee on your block and confront confront them. <laughs> we ain't got no guns. And we got good. You know what I'm saying? Y'all need to clean up your own neighborhood. Well, what do we elect your dumb behind for? <laughs> And what and the police station right around the corner and they ain't doing nothing. So there is no social contract where the people's well-being is first. And my friend Paula Peoples arguing this is missing the point. Uh the, the last point on this, and we, you know, we've been talking about it. you see. By them behaving the way they are, it further erodes the legitimacy of the Democratic Party among the most loyal base locally and nationally. No other group of people vote 90% for any party the way Black people have done over the last 50 years. You know what I'm saying? That kind of loyalty, a kind of loyalty to a fault with Obama. I mean, to a fault. We had no reason to uncritically do loyalty to a fault on the Democrat. Just, I mean, it, it makes us look bad as a people, you know, just. I mean, you know, goddamn, some opposition somewhere, you know what I'm saying? But now I think we're at that tipping point. Uh, I would hope that Larry Krasner's career ends. And I'll tell you why. Yes, I'm happy for the reforms that you're making, you know, uh, and they're, they're just the tip of the iceberg. I'm happy that you gave over six boxes of previously un, uh, unshared evidence on Mumia's case to the defense. I'm happy about that. Uh, I'm not happy that you have provided, presented certain obstacles to a new trial. Uh, I'm not happy with your lack of transparency on a number of issues, your aloofness, you know, you're too smart to, to get down with the grassroots. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. But there has to be a point where people say enough is enough. Our people are dying. There is no protection. The quality of life, I don't care whether it's in Cobb's Creek or Strawberry Mansion, mm -hmm. We can't go out of our houses. We can't go out of our houses. Now, I have called for, and I told the people, the guy, the guy that heads this commission, I said, I said, look, Gregory, his name is Reverend Holster. Mm -hmm. I said, we got to declare a state of emergency. I told him this over a year ago, a state of emergency. Oh, surprise, surprise. The mayor of San Francisco just did it the other day. And that wasn't over murders. That was over fentanyl. And people peeing outside the city hall. You know, doing other things, actually. 
I mean, over that, that, that's, but that's considered a quality of life issue enough in San Francisco that they declared a state of emergency, you know, but people being, oh, no, we can't do that because we have to protect due process. I had even gone further, mm. a limited sense of martial law mm. that you extract. I know where the gun house, you know, by the way, a lot of guns being used to kill people are rented. You can go to Cat's crib, a, 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 a gun house. And read a pistol. Yeah, you know, they have assault weapons. So. Oh, they have assault yeah, weapons. Yeah, yeah. One of the shootings was an air. So they got all kinds of ammunition. Also, you get ammunition. Yeah, they, yeah, they, you, you can uh, buy, you know, like you can buy sell, uh, cigarettes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, single mm -hmm. cigarettes. You can just buy five loose, loose bullets. Yeah, loose bullets, loosies. Where, where, yeah. Well, I'm not going to. I know but, not. Okay. But you know where the gun, I know where the gun house is, mm -hmm. not far from me. I don't walk past it. Mm -hmm. You understand? It's not like, oh, the brothers are just standing outside, uh, talk, chatting with each other. No, the brothers ain't just standing outside. You shut it down. And all, I mean, it is so obvious. Take it the other way. Just the apocalyptic scenario. Suppose black people's killing white people like that. Oh my God, bring in the army, the Navy, you know, the, the Marines, shut this down, lock everybody up. But black people killing each other, oh, ain't nothing wrong. Come on to Philadelphia. It's normal here. And when he said that, he should pay the ultimate political price. And then on top of it, I'm looking at a news conference, State Senator Sharif Street. Yeah. Okay, his office and the NAACP office, they write across from Sister Muhammad's kitchen, mm -hmm. right. up at the end, where we go to eat once in a while after preschool. Okay, well, at least me and Brandon go mm. <laughs> He can eat too. But, <laughs> and they give you a lot of food, Jake. I think. <laughs> and, okay, for somebody at night shot up these, these officers. Mm -hmm. wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was a serious spring, but it was at night. I don't know what the message, what it was. Nobody was killed, nobody was shot. Senator, uh, uh, Sharif Street holds a press conference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, I'm down. I'm down. I'm not going to question motives or intentions, but I'll just say he's a politician. Mm -hmm. Okay, at the press, and he's he's giving talking about what happened, why they had the NAACP, his office, city council, woman, Sharice Park. They they're all up there so they can service people. If the state senator can't do it, maybe the city council won't do it, blase, blase, blase. And that this was, you know, kind of an extension of the gun violence that we've been seeing in the city. So you have um, the, the sheriff of the city, 
you have Senator Sharif, you have the city councilwoman, and I look, and here's Larry Krasner standing up there. Oh, hometown now, since your political chestnuts in the fire, or since your behind is up, up against the wall, I don't know what it is, but you know, you don't get my point. Now you showing up. Now you so sympathetic. So, but none of them calls for the type of solution that is right in front of our faces and available. Number one, a state of emergency. Number two, the politicians, the civil society calls for a convention of the people at the convention center to say in effect that the government and the people will mobilize to shut this down. We will bring political and moral pressure. In other words, where the bum who is the sitting, I mean the, the DA, ain't no problem. We will say as the people, there is a problem. And anyone that does this to black people is an enemy of black people. I don't care if you're crazy or what, you have committed violence against the people. We will not accept it. That at least twice a week, people will take to the streets in their neighborhoods and call upon the police. That's the drug house. That's the killer. That's his mother. That's his grandmother. That's his father. That's who's protecting him. The people can only overcome fear if they are united. The people must. Now, Senator Sharif, I'm going to Harrisburg tomorrow, the first thing in the morning, and I'm going to bring back money to this and do that. All that, all the money in the world ain't going to solve this. Midnight basketball ain't going to solve this. Mm -hmm. It is only the political and moral force of the people with the government that will do it. We have to shut it down. Now, my friend, you know, everybody knows uh, Cynthia. Cynthia said, Tony, all we can do is pray. And, and I said, yes, we must pray, but we must do things. We must act. Prayer is a part of it. Prayer unites people. Prayer encourages people to do good, to think good. But we must act. The churches, the nation of Islam, the other mosques, the unions, the organized force of the people. And we cannot see. Some people say, Soci no, forget sociology right now. Sociology ain't gonna help you. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I am interested in a discourse that will diffuse a certain level of anger. I'm for that. But I'm not gonna let you kill somebody before I talk to you. I'm gonna get you away from the people where I can talk to you. And I'm not letting you out on bail for $1,500, you know, cause you're only killing black people. And everybody knows that. 
that it's, if it if the shoe were reversed, no, I won't say 200, let's say half, no, kill three white people, mm -hmm. three out of 530. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different response. Am I like, no. Am I invoking the race card inappropriately? I don't think so. <laughs> no, yeah. kill three. Yeah. That was the temp, exactly. The temp yeah. temp, but yeah. kill three. Yeah. Hey, you think Larry cries? Oh, it ain't no problem. We got this. No, <laughs> we have to do something. And black, white, or otherwise have to pay a political penalty for this kind of abuse and trivialization of a great people who put your dumb behind in office. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm calling for. I, I feel it personally because my daughter and my two little granddaughters, I, I have to tell them, look, when you come out of the house, Nicole, you come out first and look both ways. Mm -hmm. Have a plan of how to get out of your house into your car. Mm -hmm. And then how to get out of your car back in your house. Because there's a drug and gun house down the street and everybody knows who populates that house. Do I have to wait until they kill somebody or hurts a child to do something? You see what I'm saying? This, this is very, and I forgive my speaking order. This is so deep and emotional in the Black community for Larry Krasner in office because of the Black vote and only because of the Black. He don't get from here to the corner without the Black vote. Nobody knew him from Buster. You understand? He ain't never did nothing. I think he worked for community legal services. You understand? Put him in there as an act of good faith. And then as soon as you get in there, we facing an existential crisis. You know, black folk are the most organized group of people in the society. This is sociological studies. Black folk organize. But when there is this kind of violence, we can't, or it disorganizes us. You can't come out of the house to come to church on Wednesday night to talk about whatever, to hold Bibles. These are the things, of, the foundations of organization. You know, you can't come out of the house to go to choir practice. You can't go to the union meeting because you don't know who's what's going to happen. You see what I'm saying? It disorganizes a community who whose existence depends upon their organize, being organized and face-to-face -face talking. You know what I'm saying? Talk, we talk, you know, singing, doing things that we do. We don't have the money, we don't. Have, and just to betray us like that, uh-uh. Mm -hmm. Pay a price, Larry. Get out, we don't need you. We don't need that. I don't give a fuck what your uh, reform agenda is. Because now it turns out that your reform agenda is all about you mm -hmm. and your political career. Mm -hmm. That's why you broke down crying, because you might be at the end of the road, homie. And I hope so. Pay a price. Mm -hmm. And that dumb mayor will. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But see, this is where this is where we are. 
And like Joe said, ain't the substance, ain't the procedure, but it is the substance. What is the contract with the people? Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going to have to go. But everybody in the preschool, be careful. Be careful. Can't do everything you want to do. If you like to ride skateboards, give it up for the time being. <laughs> I mean, them bikes ain't going to get it right now, as I always tell Sarah. But go ahead. I don't like that. But, um, <laughs> no, it's just like even in the homes, you get shot in the homes. Yeah. Um, and it's just this whole thing with gentrification it really comes hand in hand with what you're saying. That's what, and, you know, that brings up the universities. Because um, they don't have. Can I just say one thing just apropos what you just well you know where I live where I grew up. You know, Richard Allen Projects was the first federally financed public project. Um, and really it was all black because no white people wanted to live in there pretty much, but it was beautiful. But it was poor. It was when the square slum was, but now you had nice houses, you know, public houses. Many people, as like I always talk hard about the jazz genre. Part of the, 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 the where it originates is Richard Allen Project. McCoy, Tyner, John Coltrane, Lee Morgan, um, uh, Spanky, the Breast. I could go on and on. Bobby Timmons, you know, that's where they practice that. That's where they work. Miles and Dizzy Gillespie and, and um, uh, Art Blakey and them, they would come and sit outside Spanky's father mother's crib because that's where them cats practice at because Spanky's father had a piano in there. And so they'd be listening, Miles and them, to see who they was going to count, you know, to be in their groups, you know? And um, all of that, um, Bill Cosby come out of Richard Allen, a, a lot of people. And people lived you know, uh, working people, working people. And they went to work, they had a community center. I know when our little Boy Scouts, we go up there and all this type of thing. And I watched how they let Heron take over. When I say, what wasn't inevitable, when you let the drug dealers, now the Heron thing back then ain't nothing compared to this, but you let, and then it, you erode, and then people can't live. They move out. Everybody didn't want to move out. They like Richard Allen. They like the community. They like, they, they had a beautiful, um, uh, you know, uh, recreation hall, and there would be dances and groups singing and all, you know, things that people, and, you know, the weight of a community of all these people. Genius comes out and all of that. They let Heron, and then after, and then they let crack take over, and then they say, We can't do nothing with it, tear it down. You know, they could have. I saw it take over a neighborhood. Didn't have to. They let it. And now, whenever, and government has a way of backing off. When, it, when it's black folk, and we know it too damn well. Mm -hmm. And ain't no apology, ain't no justification. 
you know, that Paula Peoples writing that article, which I don't think she completely wrote. I think it was a, a group thing and other, sounds like a PR piece out of the DA's office. Larry Krasner, what you said in the face of this existential crisis cannot be justified. Our quality of life, the quality of life of our children is being impaired. It has to be stopped. I don't, I, I don't even know what to say. No, I was just mentioning it. And, and of course, I live down where I live is heavily gentrified. Mm -hmm. Went from 90% black to now we're down to about 30% black. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody shooting down there either. Mm -hmm. They keep that up the way. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Ain't no shooting down there. I feel, you know, like, hey, mm -hmm. I could sit on the steps, yeah. you know? But uh, if I live up up a little bit, and I know I know where the gun house is. I know it ain't no ain't nobody hiding, ain't nobody underground. And there's a there's a a, a shootout between the cats at Richard Allen and dudes over at Pentown. And oh god, what I'm doing? A cat from Richard Allen named Michael Muhammad, who was you know like kind of being the mediator, I'm going to work with the brothers and all that. They killed him down there a couple, few weeks ago. 13 people have been killed back and forth. Now, I mean, hey man, it can be stopped. You can defuse it. You can defuse it. I'm standing waiting for a bus the other day about six or seven kids, young, walking down. But I know, yeah. I know what I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you got. Yeah. You know, if I step to y'all, you can't do nothing with me, just, you know, physically, but, and then bam, bam, and I'm, you know, I'm gone. And you can stop it. They could stop it. What are y'all doing? This is school day. Boom. Y'all coming with us. Lock them up. See what's what. Where are your parents? Mm -hmm. You've got to do it that way. Mm -hmm. You cannot allow a people to live under this threat mm -hmm. of death and, and being mm -hmm. for your sons. Mm -hmm. If you got a son today, mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, maybe we'll talk just a little later. Let's talk about quickly to end on uh, bell hooks. Is that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I just want to add in Eric Hudson, who's actually from Chicago, so oh, I'd actually be interested to hear what he has to say about Chicago too. But he says a question for perhaps another show or session is what is to be done? Yeah. Clearly, as y'all so elegantly, elegantly stated, the US empire is collapsing at a mind numbing pace. And hashtag Jim Crow Joe Biden is compensating by choking out and starving us out, aka the masses, for corporate gain until there is nothing left. But for us, radicals organizing and providing mutual aid in our communities, what is to be done now that this illegitimate government run by the kleptocrats has intensified its systematic looting of its internal colonies, including the south and west sides of Chicago, New Orleans, Newark, New York, etc. What is to be done and how do we connect? Yeah, this is going to be a big question. We'll answer that the next time around because 
increasingly move to solutions. Oh, go ahead, Jay. I just, before you move on to bell hooks, I have a question. Um, and I'm like, you're right. I feel that like you're right um, on this question of like how, uh, how to deal with these, uh, like all of these, all this crime. There has to be a, there has to pump a break. That's, it's just getting out of, it's getting out of control. And, and the people agree with you. Um, many of my coworkers, you know, they talk about, you know, I wish I could just put on a vigilante costume and, and beat up some of these guys, or I wish I could, you know, or this time, or I got robbed, or da 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 da. That's true. I guess what I'm trying to make sense of is like, well, what happens to these young cats? Because right. like, right. the and same thing. That's right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I can no, you're right. You see, but you have to disarm them. That's right. You have to neutralize them before you can enter into talk therapy. Okay. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? You can't allow, I don't care if you're 13 or 113. I can't let you just, you know, just because you think you just going to empower you. Like people said, take, we want the police out of our school, but you're not a teacher in there. You're not a student in there. Right, 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 right. You don't have and to you, you know, whether you're a social worker, you're going to take, no, man, we're dealing with, okay. This is not a creation of the people. Mm. This is a creation of an unjust criminal system. And what it has done, yeah, the collapse of public education, yeah, the undermining of sports and music and art and all the other things where you develop new young people, yes. But shit, do I have to wait to the revolution to say that my children shouldn't be killed? This is the, see, this is where you face the practical side is the moral thing to do not to do anything yeah, yeah. until you can solve everything yeah. don't listen to them people uh -huh. that's that's them people with empty protests uh -huh. and i know them all here in philadelphia uh -huh. they had everything to say now they ain't got nothing to say about the big issues well the interesting thing is that all of the defund people the defund the police people they're like on Twitter, they all try to scramble to, to to continue to insist that there's no crime problem. They're just saying it's a media, the media is distorting it. That's yeah. crazy. And yeah. I mean, the, all that stuff. Yeah. Like a lot of like the media. Is is a dog whistle. They stay inside because they have a remote jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remote job. I'm working. And they're inside, they're quarantined. Yeah, no I'm working. And they, you know, when they get their food, they order it off of Amazon. Yeah, right, right. Hey, man. You don't have to deal with, you don't have to be outside. Yeah, I mean, I, the fourth, I, yeah. yeah. In the fourth industrial revolution, we don't have a crime problem because we don't go out. Second, my question, my follow-up question is like, well, then what happens? I feel like it's just, just a repeat of the crack epidemic. This is, you know, no, what I, I think we all these black young, young men get blocked, yeah. locked up. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, see, first of all, it's not all these young. Okay. No, 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 you're right. No, it's, it's important and, and for, for policy and for action that you define. Now, do, you ain't going to get everybody in one swell swoop, but you have to diffuse the clear and present danger. Yeah. You know, if I can tell you about, look, there are places not far from me that I won't walk by. I go so far, then I walk the other way and go around. Mm -hmm. Not going up in there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let's just do. You want we we quickly on bell hooks. Just a quick thing. Quick thing. Question of bell hooks is the question of postmodernism, and it's the question of the displacement of a philosophical um, uh, uh, philosophy that says the truth is possible and that fundamental change is possible. Uh, Bell Hooks does not advocate any of that, never did. Uh, she put together phrase, for instance, uh, how does she call it? White supremacist, patriarchal capitalism. I'm saying that. Uh, oh, Sis It's kind of a, a form of identity politics, but it is, it is the postmodernist anti-radical, and it is a petty bourgeois, you know, the petty bourgeois can always, you know, be on, be with the ruling class and express a lot of um, rage and outrage as though, you know, the, like we talk about the fierce urgency of now, their fierce urgency of now is completely tied to the subject, to the individual. And that's what it was. And, and that, that was, its weakness. I don't see much that was strength that was empowering uh, in the narrative of Bell Hooks. She, I think she was a very nice person, although I never met her. I think she was a very troubled person mm -hmm. as well. Uh, but I, I don't think that it comes out of Audre Lorde, uh, et cetera. So, so. What were you saying about Hang on, Oh, quickly. Michelle Liu has suggested, she said that I would like, do you think we could read on dialectics and Hegel and yada, yada, yada. And I suggested that we really might have to. I think it slowed down. I was talking about how Lenin, when he did political analysis, he used dialectical method, you know. Um, but that's more than a notion. But it's something, if you all would think about it, I'm going to think about it because we have to think about how we would do it and how we would organize it. It's something that could be of great value in terms to of us. I'm sorry, in terms of reading on our own or in terms no, of no, reading no. in preschool? In the preschool. I had suggested, yeah, come on, let's go, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so, quick question to say about. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, one thing. Sorry. One more, one more one announcement, y'all. Well, hopefully, we'll continue some of this conversation with the uh, event, which is happening on Thursday at uh, 6.30 p.m., uh, hosted by Catherine Blunt uh, in her role at the 46th Ward Registered Community Organization. It's going to be a Magna presenting some of the research which she's been doing. It's a, a year-long study she's been doing on the effects of the universities in West Philadelphia and North Philadelphia's uh, gentrification of the surrounding neighborhoods using Black Reconstruction and uh, discussing how her main finding is that universities are destroying Black ownership that were once the working people's main source of wealth and a base for revolutionary movements. She's going to be talking about this new kind of so-called progressive ideology and politics is emerging to try to replace this and uh, basically yeah, discussing home ownership and democracy so and hopefully doc will also say a few words this event too right. and that'll be on thursday yeah. and it'll be on 6 30 p.m on zoom yeah